This episode is brought to you by Grasshopper Climbing. I got to climb with Boone Speed and try out the Grasshopper Board for two days last summer when I was in Salt Lake, and I immediately fell in love with the Grasshopper Board. I am an engineer, and whenever I climb in a new gym or a new kind of training board, I'm always noticing little things that bug me or that I would change. With the Grasshopper Board, I can honestly say I wouldn't change a thing. They put a ton of thought into their hold shaping and their layout, and I think this board has the highest bang for your buck value of any board I have ever climbed on. I totally got my ass kicked trying a bunch of V7s with Boone. They were super fun to climb on. They felt hard for the right reasons. They weren't weird or tweaky. The movement was complex and interesting. You had to get the body positions just right. But it was super powerful as well and requires you to try really hard to hang on with your fingers. I think the board is really good for gaining finger strength, which is something I always need to work on. And the best part, because the angle is adjustable, this board is for everybody. No matter what level you are at currently in your own climbing ability, the Grasshopper board has thousands of possible climbs you can do. It's like having an entire climbing gym right in your garage. They even have a sport climbing feature that allows you to climb Routes. The lights change as you climb up and down and around on the board for up to 100 moves in a row. It's so much fun. And with that feature, plus the bouldering, I personally think the Grasshopper board is the best training tool I have ever seen. But don't take my word for it. The folks at Grasshopper believe in their product, and they just want you to try it out and see for yourself. If you want to learn more, head over to grasshopperclimbing.com or check them out on Instagram at grasshopperclimbing. And if you love what you find and decide to invest in your very own Grasshopper board, be sure to tell them I sent you because the folks at Grasshopper are offering you guys, listeners to this podcast, $500 off when you order a fully kitted out 8 by 10 foot board that's their smallest board and you can save even more than that if you upgrade to a larger board again that's grasshopperclimbing.com to learn more and connect with their sales team and be sure to tell them i sent you to save 500 dollars or more on your very own grasshopper this episode is also brought to you by Rhino Skin Solutions. These guys are my go-to when it comes to taking care of my skin for climbing. I have been using the Performance Cream to keep my skin dry as it is starting to warm up here in Arizona, where I currently am, and I've been using Repair Cream in the evenings to help my skin heal between sessions on my bouldering projects. Whether you have dry, glassy skin or sweaty skin, and you have trouble keeping chalk on your hands like I do, Rhino Skin Solutions has products that are designed just for you and your skin type. Check out my episode with founder Justin Brown way back in episode 22 of The Nugget to learn more about which products are right for you and how to dial in your skin for an upcoming trip or performance season. That's a super valuable episode if you want to try Rhino products. If you want to level up your skin game, head over to rhinoskinsolutions.com and enter code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order. That's rhinoskinsolutions.com. Use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off and start taking better care of your precious skin today. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt. I'm recording this in a beautiful little campsite in the woods in my van, and my guest today is 
Carly Rager. Carly has a master's degree in structural engineering and had a career as an engineer before becoming a climbing coach and founding her own coaching business, Project Direct Coaching. And I was really excited to talk to Carly because I think she is a kindred spirit of mine. We're both engineers who have left our engineering roles and built our own businesses in the climbing industry and are trying our best to help as many of you guys out as possible in your paths towards harder climbing. And it was great. I really enjoyed this conversation. We talked about Carly's background and what led her to start her own coaching business. We talked a lot about what it was like to be a female in the engineering world and similarities, unfortunate similarities, between that and being a female in the very male-dominated climbing and coaching industry. We also talked about mental strategies for developing focus in your climbing and mental strategies for overcoming fear. We talked about transitioning between climbing disciplines. Carly has been transitioning from focusing on sport climbing. She's really strong. She's climbed 13B. She's done several of them to more of a trad climbing and big wall focus. So that was really fun to hear about. And she had some insights for any of you who are thinking about transitioning from sport to trad or trad to bouldering or whatever. We talked about using injuries as opportunities, and Carly told a pretty gnarly story about breaking her leg while trad climbing, and a bunch more. I really enjoyed this conversation. We touched on a lot of different topics, from things that will tangibly help you guys in your climbing to Carly's hopes for the climbing industry. And if you're an aspiring climbing coach, I think this will be a really helpful conversation as well. It might help you get a better sense of where to start and which certifications might be helpful for you and things like that. So I hope you find it interesting. And without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Carly Rager. I'm sitting on my couch to like make me a little more comfortable. So kind of nice. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be eloquent, you know. That's but great. Also, also be real. So, where are you this morning? Where Where am I talking to you from? I'm in Reno. Yeah. Right. So okay. I've been. Yep. So I'm still here. I've been here about like three weeks. I'm gonna take off on Sunday, but. Yeah, just been checking it out as a place that I maybe want to move because I've just been really nomadic for the last little bit and I'm kind of ready to have a spot. Oh, that's exciting. What's mm -hmm. the verdict so far? Do you like it? I do. It's been really friendly. The granite is amazing and I kind of like it because it has some like art and culture going on. So um, sometimes I feel like it's easy to become pretty one-dimensional if you only live in a place that has climbing and the only mm -hmm. people you hang out with are climbers, then it's like, so it, it feels like good in that way. You know, there's like other stuff going on. And your work is climbing and everyone that you talk to on the internet is climbing <laughs> or yep. are climbers. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what I do in my free time when I, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. like I'm going to get, I'm going to go in climbing today, you know? So it's like, I like to have a few other things going on mm -hmm. if I can. Yeah. What are the things that you do that are totally unrelated to climbing that you enjoy that just help add some like color to your life? Yeah, I really like to read. Um, kind of a lit nerd. A lit nerd, okay. Yeah. I really like um yeah, like classic literature. Actually a lot of like Russian lit as well. And I write poetry too. So like there's like a Monday night poetry reading in Reno that I've been going to and like 
that kind of adds a lot of a lot to my life if I can do that somewhat regularly. That's awesome. That's really interesting, actually, yeah. knowing what I know about you and your background. Um, I'd, I'd love to get into that. Are you, I'm, I'm already recording. Are you good to go? You ready to just yeah. roll yep. right into this thing? You're easy to talk to. Here we go. Cool. Okay. <laughs> poetry. Do you, um, do you ever stand up in front of people and recite your poetry? Um, I actually did for the first time, just like three weeks ago. Congrats. Uh, at this. Yeah. How'd it feel? Really fun. Pretty easy, actually. Um, I think over the last two years, just I've put myself out there a lot in speaking scenarios. And then I speak quite regularly at like clinics and with athletes and on the internet. And so at this point, it's sort of like, doesn't really phase me anymore. <laughs> so I was like, and I think too added to that was like, I was standing in a room with a bunch of people that I didn't know. So I was like, whatever, <laughs> they don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A little bit of like a little bit of a bravery in the anonymous nature of like, like I've only been here for a week. Yeah, you can just disappear into the crowd and never come back sort of thing. Yeah, if they throw chairs at me, I can just kind of <laughs> run out or whatever I got to do. <laughs> what yeah. kind of a poem would you have to recite for them to throw chairs at you? I wonder. Mm, hmm. Yeah, really, probably a pretty bad one. <laughs> yeah, but... <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's really interesting. I feel like that could go either way. Like the, um, yeah, being in front of a group of strangers can almost feel scarier, um, you know, I think. Or I, I don't know, also that element of creating something and putting something that came out of your mind in front of people like art. I mean, that's very different than talking about climbing and coaching and, or, you know, even leading a, an engineering meeting of any kind. So yeah, yeah that's cool that, it, that you got some transfer there of comfort zone, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I don't think I would have done that three years ago for sure. I've been like writing for a long, long time, but I don't think I would have had it in me to do that three years ago. So that's kind of cool to see that change. And like, you know, back in like high school days before I went the engineering path, I was pretty balanced in terms of enjoying like arts, art and lit literature and things like that. And then engineering school really kind of beats the creativity out of you um, because it's so mentally tiring to think analytically for that many hours in a row. And so then being out of engineering for a while, that started my that side of my brain almost felt like it was like coming back, mm. like reasserting itself in my, in my mental landscape, I guess. Yeah. I can relate to all of that. Um, I don't know if you know much about my story, but I really connect with you because you have that engineering background and I was doing the same thing, but with music and engineering and those two parts of my brain always felt, I don't know, like compatible in a way, but obviously they're they're both kind of jockeying for energy for for position, and you know you have to give over to the engineering thing to really be able to finish school and do a good mm -hmm. job. Um, yeah, I feel like a lot of my later twenties <clears throat> was rediscovering uh, creative work and and like my own desire to make things and put things out there in the world. I mean, you you kind of do that as an engineer, don't you? But it's it's really different. It's not the same as art. Totally. Yeah. Like very functional versus like evoking a specific feeling or place, which I guess is functional too, if you want to like phrase it that way. But um, yeah, it feels different. So yeah, you're an atypical engineer. I mean, I worked, <laughs> <laughs> I worked in aerospace for a long time and met a lot of engineers and I was like the only one that could have a 
you know, a relaxed conversation and express myself and talk about my feelings and all sorts of things like that. Yeah. And you seem like you're on that same wave. And um, I'm sure that's what makes you a good climbing coach. But I want to hear more about your background. Where did you come from? And when did climbing come into your life? And, and why was it that you chose this engineering path initially? Sure. Yeah. So I'm initially or yeah, born, raised Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And I was there till I graduated high school. Um, and then kind of traveled around for a little bit, started school, went and lived in Europe for a little while. I just didn't really want to stay in the Midwest, but didn't have a path and ended up at Colorado State University. Um, and that's where I did my undergraduate and master's in engineering. Um, and very much like, you know, on that track, I think it was the you know, I wanted to be like the career person and people were like, you're smart. You should go into engineering. That's where, you know, that's where you can make like a good career. Um, and I think to some extent, I liked the idea of being like, you know, sort of, I don't know, in a field that I felt was challenging for a few ways. I think I've always liked to challenge. So, um, yeah, it kind of took off on down that path and then, got the opportunity to do my master's. So it wouldn't, wasn't going to have to pay for it. So I was like, Oh, maybe I should do that. Right. Like that's a good opportunity. Um, and got out and started working in, as a structural engineer for a consulting company. And after like a year, I was like, I don't know if I really like this. Um, but I went to school for this for six years. So like <laughs> having that realization was kind of scary. And I was like, I want to stick with it for a while and like, make sure that I'm giving it a full chance. Um, so I ended up being an engineer in total for about four years and then kind of going on in the background of all of that like when I was like 20 is the first time I went climbing for the first time and I was like man I really love this um, I have a gymnastics background so I think a lot of that felt really good of like um, just being hanging from my arms you know felt kind of like comfort zone to me but now I was getting to do it in this outdoor place and like it felt like those connections that I was doing it with were really, the people I was doing it with were cool. And um, so I very much came into climbing through like the outdoor world. You know, mm. there were no climbing gyms, I think in South Dakota at that time. I also didn't have any money for <laughs> climbing things. So like for the first two years that I was climbing a little bit more consistently, um, I was climbing in a kid's harness from an REI garage sale. Uh, <laughs> and I think there's like some funny pictures of that, you know, I was like, I didn't have the money to go and buy a harness and shoes. And my parents weren't psyched on me climbing. They're like, why are you doing this? So, really? um, I t yeah, they were not, you know, I think they, they didn't quite understand all of the, all of what goes into it. So to them, it was just kind of this like very dangerous thing. So I just didn't have the money for, you know, it took a while to uh, amass the the gear that it was required to go climbing a lot. So it's kind of like a slow burn, like a slow intro to it. And a lot of it was, oh, we're going to go camping with all these cool people that I want to spend time with. And climbing is going to be kind of a peripheral part of that, but always had like a really good time. And so it kind of became more and more of a thing. And then when I hit engineering grad school, I was very, very stressed and had been like quite stressed for a while and dealt with some anxiety that first year grad school and climbing was like this place for me to be present. And I always felt much better after a climbing session. So it really kind of helped me navigate some of those mental health things that I was going through at the time. Um, but yeah, then it was just, it became very much like, okay, I love this. You know, I feel so fulfilled and happy when I'm out doing this. 
and it really became like, I would say like a big part of my life when I was like 24, 25. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to be doing something, um, in your life and kind of wondering if it's the right thing without that context of ha- of like having a passion, you know, like, cause I had the same thing, like with music and then with engineering, I'm like, yeah, I like these things. Like, I'm pretty good at these things. I think these mm-hmm. things might be the thing. And then climbing, I was like, oh, this is, <laughs> this is what it feels like to love something and want to do it all the time and to be willing to yeah. like make sacrifices in my life for it. And, mm-hmm. and it doesn't feel like I'm making sacrifices cause this is just what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I feel like for me, climbing, I, I don't I don't want to ask too leading of a question here, but I just wonder if you can relate to this. Like there's there's so many things about climbing. It's 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 such an interesting activity, which is I why I think so many people fall in love with it so deeply and so many different types of people, but like it really connects with this engineering part of my brain, like the deconstructing, the reverse engineering of a movement, of a sequence. Um, the problem solving, you know, even like the grade scale and having very tangible goals to work towards. And then there's the musician in me, like the artistry, there's like the flow and the um, being in your, in your body and and the the expression of climbing as well. And so it, it kind of captured both sides of me. I wonder if it felt that way for you as well. Yeah, no, totally. I think when I initially came into it, I was even more in the engineering, you know, it was just like breaking down a movement into like force vectors was something that was like subconsciously <laughs> happening for me. Um, and I found that to be very interesting, but it was problem solving, but like my body was involved and people were involved that I care about. So I think in, you know, it was more than problem solving. It was like, you get your body involved and then it's vulnerable. So you get to like the relationship side of it with your climbing partners becomes involved. And so I think it climbing just, is just like a totally full and like rich experience. And I think that's, yeah, like kind of what you're saying, like that's a big reason why people from all walks of life can like fall in love with it so fully is because you feel like, yeah, all of you is, every aspect of you is there Mm. applying itself um, and enjoying itself in a beautiful place. So it's like bringing all those aspects together. I don't know of another activity that, brings quite everything together like that. And I think that might be why it's so sticks so much. Yeah. Yeah. It does. It does feel really special and unique in that way. I agree with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And of course, people that are really into whatever people are really into probably have a different perspective. I'm sure there's lots of other things, but it, it, yeah, it does seem to just capture uh, just more like layers of, um, of our human experience all in one activity, uh, which is so cool. Carly, how old are you now? I'm 31. You're 31. Okay. Yeah. So you were, you got your master's, you are an engineer for four years, and now you're, you have a full-time job as a climbing coach and you own a coaching business. So that's a relatively quick transition to, um, congratulations, by the way, for doing that. That's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a big, scary thing to take a leap like that. But when did climbing coaching first come into the picture for you, or when did you realize that you were interested in that or had a knack for it? It's kind of maybe a combination of a couple of things. One is um, just being out with friends um, and kind of seeing them struggle to, you know, with their own, I guess, mental mental struggles and feeling like I had also gone through that. And I, I think the engineer in me was like, 
very much easily kind of broke it down into like, well, these are the four things, the four steps that I took to like build out a mental strategy for myself to deal with that. Um, and just sharing that with friends and kind of mentoring people in their own, in that way, um, was super, super fulfilling and rewarding and watching them, you know, go up and, you know, go for moves above bolts and take whips or send things. And so that was like, I think brought this other aspect of climbing to me that was super fulfilling and because it wasn't so much just about me. Hmm. Like up until that point, it was like, I was going out and trying to like push myself. And um, when I started mentoring others in this realm, it was like even better because it was like, now it's not just about me. And um, seeing my experiences as like sort of a conduit in which I can help others just, yeah, like brought another aspect and really solidified like the relational part of climbing that means a lot to me. So I think that was going on. And then, and kind of, it's always, I've always really, really valued and emphasized like head game and how we navigate that kind of stuff um, with climbing. And so that was kind of going on. And then a friend of mine approached me about maybe wanting to coach at Spire, which um, is the local gym in Bozeman. And I was like getting pretty, the existential crisis was building about being an engineer for sure. You know, so I was like, that's where you were working as an engineer in Bozeman. Yeah. I was still working as an engineer and I was like, okay, like, yeah, I want to like pursue this a little bit more. And so that's kind of, it was kind of like the, the birth of the idea of it, but recognizing as well that most of my coming experience was outdoors. It certainly had a lot of training experience, you know, but coaching in a competition setting wasn't necessarily like my particular area of expertise or passion. Not that I didn't really enjoy it and enjoy building the relationships with the kids on the team, but yeah, always felt a little more like I could make a bigger difference and a bigger impact in more of the outdoor focused climbing world. So it sounds like your kind of like self um, development journey as it relates to climbing started with working through anxiety, using climbing to work through anxiety. And that was um, how you first started helping other people as well. And you just mentioned, Mm -hmm. you know, the four steps that worked for me, you were able to apply that to others and help them. Um, Can we double click on that and and zoom into that? Was that just like a, did you just throw that out there or do you actually have like four steps to work through anxiety with climbing? Because I think a lot of people listening can, I mean, a lot of people out there have anxiety and and, um, climbing is such a good tool for us. But yeah, if you have any thoughts to share, I think that'd be really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I was oversimplifying it a little bit because I think we have anxiety surrounding climbing can fall into like different categories for sure. Um, and so I think I was speaking a little bit more towards like, like a fear of falling, which is kind of like an initial hurdle. There's also, you know, performance under pressure and, um, maintaining a good relationship with the sport and like, you know, comparison trap. There's all a lot of other things that are going on. So (laughs) if you need to like, just totally simplify it, but, um, yeah, with developing focus, maybe for like, if we're trying to do a red point attempt on a harder climb, there is sort of like a general outline that I've developed and each step is like basically gets tailored to the individual athletes. Everybody's different, but like generally when we're talking about like focus development, a big part of that is building out this kind of mental strategy that then you can turn into a habit that you use kind of every time that you get a little nervous on the red point attempt or you're, you start thinking about 
who else is watching you or like how many times you've one hung this thing while you're trying to climb and recognize like becoming an observer to your own mind in those scenarios is something that's important for climbers to develop. And so, yeah, there's, there's so many little avenues that this can take, but maybe like in the example of the climber that has like racing thoughts um, as they're trying to go up and send a route um, and they are starting to think about, I think the most common thing is like, let's say that there's a crux at bolt eight and the climber's like at bolt two and they are thinking about the crux and sending this thing while they're trying to climb the rest of it. And that's when we have those scenarios where you're just like, oh, I'm off. Like what happened? I'm off. Mm. Like if you've ever had that happen where you're climbing and then you fall and you don't even understand like what, all of a sudden you're hanging from the sure, room. You're like, yeah. Yeah. You're like, wait, what was going on? Uh, and so the first step that I help people with is just trying to like be observant to your mind. So start to practice noticing when your mind goes away from anything other than the move you're doing or like the immediate route reading that you're doing. Because any mental strategy is going to have to start with you noticing that you need it. And if, if you go 45 seconds between hey, I'm no longer thinking about the climb and I, you never notice it. The train leaves the station. Event, like that's where we get that like unexpected fall. And we're like, what's even going on up here? Like, what am I even doing? Um, so developing that so that way you notice right when your mind goes somewhere else so you can start to bring it back. And then basically using um, using some other things like after that, but that piece, that's kind of like step one in addressing kind of the, the focus and racing thoughts is practicing that on easier terrain and developing focus in that way. And it takes a lot of practice, actually. Most people, when I first give them that task are like, okay. And then they're like, oh, wow, I only got two bolts up the climb before I was thinking about something else. <laughs> right. you know, that's always an interesting one. And, and it's cool because what I try to do with like mental training things. And I think the bridge that I'm trying to cross is that we can assign like kind of like quote unquote, like training metrics to our mental abilities. So if you were like your mind is drifting at bolt two, and then you continue to work on this and now you're getting kind of consistently like two thirds of the way up of a climb before any sort of mental drift happens, that can provide people a lot of encouragement because they actually have numbers that are moving, kind of like how we would move a deadlift number or a max hang number. Mm. So kind of like bringing in that engineering side of me to that and giving people that like actual feedback has been really helpful because, yeah, I think with the whole conversation of like mindset work and mental training, there's a lot of people out there like, that might be a little too woo-woo for me or like where's the evidence? Where's the metric? Where, how do we measure this? And so I've been working to make sure people have a bit of a measurable improvement in each of these things that I assign them. And that's been helpful because then people can see it more as mental training and not just like journaling and talking about your feelings, which is totally <laughs> worth doing. Totally worth doing. Right. I'm a big fan of that too, but can we get both sides addressed? Can we have space for that and training mental training metrics that move yeah that is such a fascinating um thing about us westerners in particular like we we just have this huge blind spot you know we n none of us even really think about our minds as being trainable until until we do until we realize like oh 
<laughs> of course, just like anything else, if you if you practice something, work on something. Um, I've really dove deeply into mindfulness. You know, I I listen to a lot of Sam Harris and use his app, and that's really truly been. Oh, really? Yeah. I was wondering, like a lot of the things you're saying, just th- make me think of a mindfulness practice and meditation, and I mean, it's like truly life changing, and it's. It, it you know it's it's always um it feels weird to throw that word around because you know people kind of like pull back they think it's spiritual woo woo whatever but it's no it's just like anything mindfulness is a skill like being the observer of your own thoughts is something that you have to practice if you've never done it before it feels really weird but i mean it's it just like feeds into everything in our lives and of course it helps our climbing yeah that's so cool. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So you started coaching at Spire. You realize like coaching these kids and comps and stuff isn't so much your thing. You didn't hate it. Not so much your thing though. What does your coaching business and practice look like now? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the name of my company is Project Direct. Um, so Project Direct LLC. And so we work with climbers on the physical side of things and the mental side of things. Um, basically, um, just kind of whatever the climber needs, which is interesting. We usually try to have a conversation with the climber first to kind of get a feel for where they're at. And I think uh, sometimes it is training and sometimes they might think it's training, but it's head game or a combination of that and skills. So one really important piece is like making sure we get the athlete in the right program that's actually going to make a difference in their climbing and not just giving an athlete a training plan that might need to do skill work. Mm. That's an important piece because that's going to be better for the athlete and for us, obviously trying to, you know, elicit improvements in people's climbing performance and their relationship with the sport. And that's become an important piece as well. So, um, right. So I work with athletes and do training plans. Um, it's certainly kind of like a big part of project direct. Um, and, that, you know, I just kind of have like a roster with that. Um, and then I have athletes that I only work on head games. So that's fear of falling performance under pressure. Casey, one of the project direct coaches, he has lots and lots of trad experience. So he'll do like specific trad head game with people, but again, you know, giving people that outdoor guidance of like, okay, you want to do this. Um, here's like some incremental steps and then having a coach kind of talk through that with that. Hopefully you know, has quite a bit of experience actually like maybe in that area. It's really cool to coach people on routes that we've climbed, you know, and sort of like intimately familiar with some of that stuff. Um, so yeah, so training plans is one totally head game is the other. And then uh, like the kind of like higher level of working with project direct is one-on-one coaching. And that's like a weekly zoom call movement analysis, all training and outdoor guidance, basically like we're going to design your next three months of climbing and, um, and dig into the areas and find the right, you know, like lever to pull, that's actually going to make the difference for you. Um, so in that way, it feels very engineering because it's sort of like, we're looking at this climber and we have training metrics, but we also have subjective interview information and their own anecdotal stories and trying to like, be like, okay, what's the, you know, what's the lever to pull? What is it that we need to actually improve so they can feel different on the wall? And um, yeah, sometimes it's totally training, but I definitely have a lot of people come to me and they're psyched and they're like, I want a training plan. I need to get stronger. Um, And I look at their numbers and I'm like, 
holy smokes, you are so <laughs> strong. Yeah. Um, yeah. Compared to what your climbing grade might be. And so then that's kind of a cue to me to dig a little deeper and be mm. like, you know, maybe there's some underlying, you know, get some video of them climbing or um, talk through their their mental process. And so it becomes kind of like uh, kind of problem solving in that way, which is fun. Yeah, I really like that. And something that you just said that um, is kind of standing out to me right now that I think is worth talking more about is you didn't say which levers to pull. You said which lever to pull. You used the mm -hmm. singular form of that. And something that I screwed up for so long that I'm still realizing, like, as I think more about it, but I, I was just the person that was so hungry. I was just reading everything, absorbing everything and like collecting this overwhelmingly long list of things that I needed to work on, right? It was like, okay, now I know a lot more about nutrition and how much I've neglected that. My sleep, you know, my mindfulness practice, like stretching, my finger strength, my this strength, my that strength. I need to do more steep bouldering. Like I need to work on my head game and relaxing and being present and my breathing and all those things are important. But, um, you know, we don't have to work on all of them right now. And that's something that took me a long time to figure out is that you invest, if you invest deeply in one of these things and you make real progress there, that progress doesn't just go away as soon as you shift to the next area of focus. But I'd, I'd love to hear you talk more about that. Like, do you think it's, if someone comes to you and they're really strong, uh, but maybe they do have some physical weakness, but it's not that lever. It's not the thing that is like, the bottleneck that's holding back all of their climbing. Do you think it's worth just focusing all of their effort on that thing to the exclusion of other types of, of training and working on other things? Do you just go all in on, on that or is it, is it a balance? How do you think about that? Yeah, I think, I think ideally you would go in all in on like, if we know that it's fear of falling or if we know that it's, um, like footwork or if we know that it's a specific rock type or skill you know going all in would be the ideal but the reality is is that we work with working adults and they can't necessarily go out all the time and so it's maybe those things take precedence in the outdoor guidance day but they have access to a gym addressing those physical weaknesses at the same time is not always you know impossible and so if the athlete's like hey i go to the gym twice a week and i can go outdoors once or twice a week well that's what we have to work with you know those are like the constraints of what what we're doing um i think in an ideal situation i always say like with skill type development it's kind of good to think about it like a language and immersion is ideal mm. so if, if we know it's like um skills or on overhanging train or skills on Bert terrain or crack climbing, you know, I think like really investing 20 to 30 climbing days in the terrain that we're not feeling as confident or skilled in is the ideal. That might take a while, depending on the athlete. If the athlete can go climbing three days a week, that's going to be like not take as long. If the athlete can't go climbing as often, you know, that's half a year. Yeah, it's half a year. And, um, one of the things that I notice climbers struggle with, because obviously if they come to me, they're hungry, right? They like, they want to coach, they care about this, obviously. Um, it's kind of a given. Um, is that during skill development and transitioning into different style or transitioning from bouldering to sport climbing or trap climbing to sport climbing, you know, there's like that transition phase where we really do kind of need to let performance go. 
and see it as learning. And I think that's something that is really hard for athletes that obviously care a lot about this if they feel like they're a pretty advanced boulder and sport climbing is now they're in that world and it's, you know, they're not performing at what their training metrics say they should or like, you know, whatever idea they've grasped onto like where they quote unquote should be they're below that because they're kind of in that like trenches of transition between disciplines or skills and releasing that performance for a while while you're learning, I think is really, really paramount for not only getting everything that you can out of that experience, but also maintaining a good relationship with the sport, you know, Mm. and continuing to do it for, for years and years is we, Um, I think we get inundated with climbing media and it's almost like people are always sending stuff all the time. And the reality is we, we're going to learn more and maintain a better relationship with the sport. If we allow like kind of the ebb and flow of like performance versus skill acquisition to, you know, just kind of happen. The trenches of transition. I like that. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) it is. I mean, I think a lot of people understand that rationally. Um, you know, if I try something new that I want to get better at, I'm going to suck for a while, but it'll be worth it in the end. Like that's a pretty, you know, obvious concept, but it's, I, I think we like, like, I, I want to share my own experience of how hard that is just to make yeah. hopefully people feel a little bit better and, um, give people some hope. You know, I, so I lived at Smith Rock for seven years. That was like, I, I was just like kind of all in on that style, just vertical tech, you know, tiny little holds standing on the tips of your toes and stiff shoes, whatever, and got pretty good at it. And hitting the road and finally having an opportunity to climb in more places and also like going through this weight transition and putting on more muscle and kind of looking and feeling different in my body. It's been like kind of a three-year process of reinventing myself to learn how to be a strong climber in steep, thuggy terrain and to eventually, just like now in the last you know few months, feel like I've gotten back up to where I left off in that Smith Rock style. And three years, I mean, I'm not kidding. Like it's been a full-time a full-time thing for three years to pursue that. And it like really, really sucked for a while. I just felt shitty about myself. You know, I felt like I sucked at climbing. You're just getting your ass kicked all the time. Um, But it worked, like it, it worked. And now I'm, I'm feeling really excited just this season about like breaking new ground again and feeling like I'm, you know, that, that adventurous kind of excitement of like, oh, I, you know, I might actually be able to be better than I used to be. And, and I think I'm going to break some plateaus and this is so cool. And part of um, what really helped was just like focusing on what I really enjoyed in that process, like trying to make that learning process as fun as possible by choosing the right things. And of course, I have the freedom to live on the road and travel and go wherever I want to go, which is like the I'm so grateful for that. But, you know, going to Rocky Mountain and finding climbs that I loved there that were in that challenging style for me. And same thing in Waco Tanks, like falling in love with Waco, even though it's quite a hard style for me. But like, it's about, it it becomes about these really cool little challenges that are part of the process. And and if you, I think if you zoom in and have that finer resolution, that can really help as you go through those trenches of transition. I really like that phrase. Yeah. Well, I feel, I feel similarly. And that's kind of like, I've been more recently more inspired by like 
bigger multi-pitch lines and track climbing and um yeah, I guess the app background is like a lot of my experience is more in like single hard single pitch sport climbing. And so I feel the same way. I feel like I've been like working on getting better at crack climbing and track climbing for about a year, you know, and I've seen considerable improvement, but I still wouldn't say it's like full comfort zone, you know, it's like I still have so much to learn. Um and yeah, just like finding joy in that whole process. And it's so cool. Like you sit down in the learner's seat and you learn one thing and you're like, whoa, that was a significant improvement. And like versus being pigeonholed in one thing and you're like already pretty good at it. And so it's a lot harder to see, like it's a lot harder to get as many improvements. So it can be kind of fun in that way. Um, But yeah, if you can get over that, I think have that experience once or twice or kind of go through this process once, then you realize that you can do it again with different styles, but it takes that, that time commitment is just real. It just takes a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the the grades thing is strange too. I remember that was really hard for me for a while. I was like, <clears throat> you know, comparing because all climbs use the same grade scale, regardless of where they are, what style, how steep, like mm-hmm. whatever, what rock type. So mm-hmm. I'm comparing 13Bs in St. George on like steep overhanging slippery limestone to 13Bs mm-hmm. at Smith that I did five, six, seven years ago, whatever. But like, why? That's a really stupid comparison to make. I'm like, comparison, <laughs> you know, I'm like trying to compare new me to old me and like, oh, <laughs> bummer. Yeah, but totally. It's, but I'm like climbing the hardest thing I've ever climbed in this new style, which is great, right? So mm-hmm. I think getting away from from that global view of grades is really helpful as well. Instead, like actually something that's really helped me is making a spreadsheet <laughs> for, uh, for each climbing you style. You are an engineer. <laughs> yeah, I have so many spreadsheets, Carly. It's ridiculous. But yeah, like making a, a Google sheet of um, each climbing area or style that I really want to get better at and just looking, like focusing more on my climbing pyramid at that place, like rifle, for instance. If I look at my progress just in rifle, it's a lot easier to see that progress and stay motivated than if I compare it to all the things I've done at Smith Rock, which honestly yeah. hold no relevance. Totally. That's actually a big reason why I, um, like in my coaching, I don't push the grade pyramid specifically because of like those stylistic, you know, if somebody's climbing in like 10 sleep um, and they are like, feel really great about their grade pyramid. And then they go somewhere else and it's a totally different style. It's going to feel like a bummer. Cause they're going to be like, oh, I should be able to climb whatever or should, you know, mm-hmm. the joy killer of climbing. <laughs> I, like, the joy killer I of life. This thing. <laughs> yeah. Should. Yeah. yeah. Like, like, um, and so I really try to get away from that and yeah maybe we're wanting to work skills in like the 511 or 512 range or whatever it is and so it's not so much like how many 512 days have you sent it's how many 512s any style of or if any you know any 512 in a style mm. right and mm. like so it kind of sounds similar almost to what you're doing but like your yours actually sounds more organized but yeah like not focusing so much on that because i also feel like what can happen with that is somebody will like uh, avoid, like, for example, I worked this 512 out here at the Starwall up near Lake Tahoe. And if you were to look at my grade pyramid, it would not indicate, you know, if you were totally subscribed to that, it would probably, it would not indicate that I, that I need to do another one of those, Mm. but this 512 had like a pretty big move to a hand jam and like, you know, it was just kind of crack climbing. And so stylistically, 
I felt like it was quite worthwhile for me to spend a day on it and, you know, figure out how to do that climb. Um, and that doesn't, it just doesn't really like fit into the great pyramid in that way, but I felt like it taught me a lot. And so there was a lot of value there. I love that. Um, that makes me want to ask more about your coaching philosophy. And I have I have all sorts of notes in front of me. So if at any point you feel like we should move in a different direction, just let me know. But yeah, I would love to hear about your four pillars, your coaching philosophy and the four pillars that you focus on mm. if now feels like the time. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I think this is an interesting and good thing to talk about because this is kind of this, we're seeing this trend, like this age where there's climbing coaches um, in a lot of realms. And I think people maybe that are really psyched on climbing might want to look into getting a coach. Um, and so I thought about these in terms of like what the coach's responsibility is. You know, I think about like the difference between a coach and a trainer, um, climbing movement in general, you know, and like how how we've talked about climbing a lot as like this tripod between skills, mental game and physical ability. And I was thinking more like maybe coaching can also be sort of at least pinpointed in some way with a similar idea. And so the things that I kind of have thought about and come up with for something that if you're looking to get a coach would be important questions to ask is certainly direct coaching experience, you know, like there's a lot of amazing climbers out there that, you know, that just don't have the direct coaching experience. And so getting, if you're talking to a coach and getting a handle on that and making sure maybe their delivery method is something that resonates with you, things like that. Um, my coaching style is pretty action oriented. And I think that, um, I think that's great. I think that there's other styles out there that are great too, but you know, mine is always like, how do we get you something that you can like go out and do and like give you this? So um, direct coaching experience is important. Direct climbing experience is also massively important. Um, I think that this is a one that gets thrown around as being maybe the end all be all. I get questions like, you know, like how hard do you even climb and things like that. We yeah. Kind of like talk, I want, I want to talk dig, about dig more into that in yeah. a minute. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I do think it's important, right? We need to have enough experience that like direct climbing experience that we can draw upon. And um, maybe if you're looking to be like really progress in bouldering, you know, like there's a lot more to that than training and, you know, your max hang. There's so much movement involved. Um, and so seeking out a coach that has a lot of direct experience in that realm, I think is important. So um, direct coaching experience, direct climbing experience, um, education, I do think is important. You know, like what, if you're programming training sessions, you know, what, what education, or if you're working head game, you know, like, do you have a sports site background or certification? Are you, you know, if you're doing training plans, do you have, are you a certified personal trainer or, you know, CSCS, but like, you know, has this coach invested in themselves to make sure that they are going to be able to program safely um, for you and your goals. So those are the first three that come to mind. And then the fourth one that I've been thinking about a lot more is how does the, you know, coaching for longevity, how does the coach see your athletic development beyond their three month training plan with you? Mm. And how does the coach encourage you to develop a sustainable relationship with the sport? So yeah, I kind of in that realm, like if you climb for 20 years, 
and you have a really good relationship with a sport that allows you to do that, you're going to see a lot more success than if you are so hungry, climb one hard thing and then burn out and quit after two years. Mm, yeah. And so, you know, that sort of um, broadening the lens or like widening the lens, I guess, a little bit on your climbing and mixturing, making sure that the coach is supporting that as well. So it's kind of like, so we got like, yeah, the four pillars, I guess you could say. So like coaching for longevity, education and certifications, direct climbing experience and direct coaching experience seem to be really important parts about providing a coaching experience that's going to progress an athlete, but also that is going to just be a good experience for everybody. Yeah. So those are the things that you feel are important to give to your clients as a coach yourself. But then those are also great mm -hmm. things for anyone who's interested in getting a coach to be thinking about. I, I want to ask this as far as if there's any people out there who are experienced climbers and are interested in coaching and have the, um, yeah, just have the, the interest, like want to see if they're good at it. They have that observant personality and like to give feedback, whatever. Maybe just as guidance for how someone might get into coaching, into climbing coaching, could you share more of your journey from engineer to coach? Like which things came first? You started giving some help to friends, sharing mm -hmm. your own personal experience and um, mm -hmm. trying to apply that. At what point did you start getting actual coaching experience and how might you recommend someone go about that if they are starting new? Mm -hmm. Um, and then at what point did you start bringing in these certifications and which ones felt important to you? Yeah, I, I do kind of think some, the best way to start is to, yeah, if you have, um, if you know people that want to improve at climbing and maybe you feel like you're in a position to help them is to just do it for the enjoyment of it and see if that's something you like. And maybe you have a conversation like, Hey, I'm kind of interested in, in coaching, like, can I mentor you? Um, and seeing if that's something that's fulfilling to you. And then you're just like, you know, if you're showing people and people are seeing improvements, um, I honestly think that, cause that is kind of like not a huge pressure. You don't have to like quit your job entirely or like totally make a huge life transition in that way. So I think, honestly, I think that's a good, a good place to start. And in terms of yeah, I guess like my kind of transition. So, right. It was, um, <laughs> it was like spring 2020. And so it was like height of COVID. And I think a lot of people had some pretty like wake up moments during this time, but, uh, yeah, I had been coaching at Spire and I was like, you know, we got sheltered in place. And I realized that a lot of the reason that I liked my job so much is that like, I really liked the coworkers that I had in my office and that kind of like when things weren't going super well, like at least like I did really enjoy the people I was working with and then all got stripped away. Mm. And all of a sudden I was like waking up, sitting at my kitchen table, you know, my computer for nine hours or whatever, engineering, you know, like slamming a glass of scotch and going to bed and then doing that on repeat <laughs> for like <laughs> weeks and weeks with the pressure of deadlines. And I was just like, man, like if I'm still doing this and three months I'm gonna be so upset with myself and I just felt like I was mm. like I know that this is what I want to do and like I know that there's like something missing here for me um and I think like you get to that point where the existential crisis the fear of continuing to do this thing that wasn't making me happy finally outweighed the fear of the uncertainty of jumping ship mm. yep and that's usually where we make 
change, right? Like we can be unhappy with something, but the fear of the unknown of the change is still greater than, you know, the slight discomfort staying with what we're in. And eventually that scale tips, which is what happened for me. And you're like, okay, I'm willing to just go all in, you know, I like just was like, all right, we're just going to, I have to take a break from at least a break from engineering for like my own sanity. And, um, I was like sitting in under the canopy at 10 sleep, like in June or something, just like, well, I have an idea. I'm just going to go all in because that's the only way that it's ever going to work. And, you know, just poured my heart and soul into it. And mm. that was in spring of 2020 um, and started, started coaching. And so like, yeah, at that point, um, doing a lot of like head game stuff, but you know, I, was well read in like the training plan world too, but, you know, decided that getting the certified personal trainer certification was important um, for that. And yeah, brought that in and then continued to do more head game stuff. So then kind of got like went and got sports psych, uh, like a sports psych certification as well. And so just kind of, as I have had time to further my education, I've been really psyched on doing so. And I just did my, SPI exam and passed my SPI exam down in Red Rocks this spring with the goal of being able to coach people more in person, do more clinics and stuff like that. And so that one's single pitch instructor. Yeah. 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 Got it. So, okay. yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So in that way, it's kind of evolved as like, what do I want to do? And then what's the education that's going to, you know, make it possible. And, I think to some extent, like the work, work ethic that came from engineering school and being an engineer was helpful, you know, like, and I've learned over the last nine years of my life, how to like really kind of sit down and crank and work hard and go all in on stuff. And so, um, yeah, so that's kind of been the evolution of like certifications and things is sort of like, where do I feel that I can make the biggest difference? And then what do I need to do that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I actually, I have a whole series of questions I'd love to ask you later about um, the business side of building a coaching business and what you've, mm-hmm. like what skills or tactics or strategies you've brought from your engineering work to, that have been helpful for you as far as being a manager and a business owner, because you have yeah. other, you, at least one other coach working for you now. Mm-hmm. Um, but before that, I, <laughs> so the certifications thing, I mean, it seems like that's how you're wired anyway. Like I can just tell that you are the type of person who, um, you know, it craves like more ongoing education and wants to just learn as much as you can. But I also have this note in front of me about stacking your resume. And uh, I, I would love to hear you talk about that. I thought that was such an, <laughs> yeah. such an interesting conversation the first time that you and I talked. And I think it's so such an important conversation to just put out there because we've like, like, as you were describing it, I'm like, fuck, I've like seen that happen. I've seen it happen right in front of me, you know, um, at this aerospace job where it's this male dominated industry and there's one woman there working with all these engineers. And she probably felt like she had to just work a little bit harder than everyone else, which is so fucked up, but it's, it's kind of still our reality. So I'd love to hear about stacking your resume as an engineer and as a climbing coach. Um, if you, I, I'll just open it up to you and we can, I can ask more questions as we go, but. Yeah. Yeah. This is like, <clears throat> yeah, certainly a topic that's pretty near and dear to my heart. So, and um, so as I 
I try to be mindful, you know, about the recognition that I bring myself into every situation and making sure that I try to maintain the ability to take a step back. But yeah, it's my, you know, personal experience has shaped me. And the reality is, you know, like I felt very much so that I needed to, like <laughs> my resume leaving college <laughs> was stacked. You know what I mean? Like graduated with honors and my undergraduate, you know, did my master's, had a very impeccable GPA. And in addition to that, had six engineering internships under my belt at that point. Six um, engineering internships. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had about half of one, man. <laughs> and, you know, like, because I felt like in order to be taken seriously in the, in the, you know, package that my soul has been delivered to this earth on, I had to be like on it. And I really don't think that was something that I was just saying. Like, it's not like that was really reflected to me in scenarios, you know, like I was in interviews and I had my resume questioned. I was in interviews and I professional engineering interviews where I had somebody tell me that with a body like mine, I should go into sales. Whoa. I have been, you know, in a situation where I'm leading a board, like a meeting and I'm leading the meeting in an engineering setting and I'm the only woman there that has done the design for the whole building and somebody makes demeaning mark remarks about the only thing that I know how to do is go shopping you know but I can kind of bench back and it's helpful to have this stacked resume to be like okay like you know basically like step off like mm -hmm. but uh it's tough it's so tough because in so many of these situations that I've walked into I sort of have to have my guard up. I have to be ready to defend because I've been in so many situations where I've had to defend um, in order to get taken seriously. And that's been really, really tough because you don't want to walk around the world with the chip on your shoulder. I certainly don't. And I certainly have a lot of like, I'm a human. I got feelings, you know, and for a long time, it just really felt like I always needed to have my, have my guard up or, you know, continue to stack the resume, you know, these things, you know, and like, Just gosh, I, I have a lot of stories again and again and again and again and again and again and again. Yeah. And, um, it's tiring. I think is like the main emotion that comes from that is that you just get tired, but I do think, yeah, to some extent, you know, that has carried over in like, all right, like I am going to go from one field to another, um, and wanting to like show that I'm show that I'm qualified and, you know, I'd be lying if I said that I didn't think that I had to do that a little bit more as a female climbing coach than male climbing coaches do. And I know male climbing coaches that don't get asked quite the same, you know, there's, there's good questions to ask if you're looking to hire a coach for sure. I do think sometimes I get, the questions are wafted to me with like, an undertone of microaggression sometimes that feels disturbingly familiar some, mm. to the engineering world. And the difference now though, which I've been really, really happy about is like in a scenario in the engineering world, if something, somebody said something to me that was like a little bit, or that was just straight up unacceptable, <laughs> a little bit might be generous. Somebody <laughs> said something that's straight up unacceptable. Yeah, I was in a situation where me like clapping back or like saying something would um, potentially, you know, 
jeopardize the relationship between this client and my manager and, you know, sort of this company that I represented. So I couldn't really act totally of my own volition in those situations. So I felt like I also needed to protect the integrity of whatever professional relationship was existing. Whereas now (laughs) I do not have that need. And so um, it's been easier to draw boundaries that feel really relevant and important because Mm. there's no relationship that I need to continue to be a part of if there's not like that baseline of respect. Um, So I think that has been something that might sound like in the background, but it's actually pretty substantial for me because um, I'm able to speak my truth. And then you're able to stand up for yourself. I can stand up for myself, but it's interesting that that then allows me to be softer Mm. and to let my guard down more because I feel like the relationships with athletes that I have or with other coaches or people in the industry are, if it's rooted in respect, then I can let my guard down and be more human and I think make a better impact and all of these good things happen. Um, but yes, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just hard. It is hard when somebody that, yeah, like, like I mentioned, one of the, I think direct climbing experience is an important part of being a good coach, but kind of like the, how hard have you even climbed question? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're just yeah. like, you're like, you know, like they didn't ask like how hard you climb and how hard you even climb or like how long have you even been coaching? And even, just yeah, that little, word, that word even thrown in there really changes yeah, the tone, man, doesn't it? Just like, yeah, just like, damn, like it's subtle. And so if I react really, uh, like really directly and abruptly, it's going to feel like an overreaction. But if I don't address it at all, I feel like then that perpetuates these things that this is like microaggressions that make people it's really tricky Mm -hmm. it's really tricky yeah um and yeah so it's like man bringing my background into that it it's a lot easier to just be like you may review the qualifications on this page and again feeling like having a stacked resume in that regard is helpful and important for me as a female climbing coach Mm -hmm. trying to feel that kind of thing I think something we forget to, or, or is, is tempting to forget as climbers who are, you know, interested in getting coaching and want to be really strong, um, looking for a coach for the first time is we just, we, we forget that like, you know, you've climbed 13B, you're a badass and you will likely have better tools to help someone. You started climbing in your twenties, right? So like you will likely be able to help someone a lot more effectively who is starting in their adult life and wants to climb 512 or 513 than someone who started young and is climbing 14B, right? Like you're you're gonna be so much more relatable and have direct experience with that process. And it, yeah, I mean, you might be able, you might be a way better coach to even get someone to 14B than a 14B climber who didn't have to, you know, work for it the way that you have. So yeah, that's another thing that I think we just kind of gloss over. It's, it's tempting to assume that the harder someone climbs, the better they're going to be able to assist you in your journey to become a stronger climber. But that's just not the case. Like, that's just not how coaching works. Um, yeah. I, I love I love what you just shared. Thank you for that. I, I wonder if yeah. you could provide more examples, more language as far as like, you know, you said it's really good to ask your coach, your potential coach questions, of course, and field them, um, make sure that they're right, the right fit for you. 
And there's a fine line between that and these microaggressions that you've experienced. Can you give examples of both maybe like questions that you love being asked or that make you feel respected versus, I mean, I guess you shared a couple examples with that even word thrown in there, but if anything yeah. else comes to mind to help kind of clarify that for people that have just never thought about this before, I think that'd be really helpful. Yeah. I think one kind of umbrella thing that I think is helpful that makes uh, that I would just put out there is just like, don't like, if you're about to phrase something or like send me an email and then pretend that there's like a male's email in the, in the two bot in the two category instead of mine, <laughs> would you rephrase anything? Wow. Yeah. And I think that pretty, that will often highlight and alleviate a lot of, you know, and it's kind of a bummer that we're using just like, you know, the baseline of respect is, you know, but like, the, yeah, like, you know, things that are things that are about looks or things that are about, um, you know, like strength that you might assume that a male has that maybe you don't give me the benefit of the doubt for. I think that's a really good just like pretend that you're addressing it to a male climbing coach and see if you want to change anything about the email that you're about to send or the message that you're about to send or whatever it is. And if there's nothing in there that you would change, you know, I think that's one thing. That's one easy thing. Um, yeah. Getting away from, yeah. Like how long have you even been climbing? Um, just seeing if you can make sure, you know, I don't know, just just do a little homework. A legitimate coach will have a website and they'll have testimonials and they'll have things listed about like there's qualifications, certifications. So um, that can kind of show respect to me that you've taken the time to dig and you're like, oh, this seems like this is worth worth pursuing because I get, you know, a lot of emails and a lot of DMs and a lot of things. So it's kind of like, well, per the syllabus, <laughs> like I have all of this listed. Um yeah, I think in general, if you're looking at like those four pillars and just like taking like one second to use a little bit of mindfulness about the way that you ask, I think most of that stuff can be, is pretty easily like we're able to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. I just had a thought come to mind too, like if, because I get a lot of emails as well now doing what I'm doing. Yeah. And man, I'm just for people listening to this, if you ever want to send me an email, I am I send much longer, more thoughtful responses to people who have clearly like dug in a little bit, you know, like if they ask a thoughtful question that is researched versus just like, mm -hmm. OK, I already put that in the show notes or like, you know, like I already tried to help you with that and you just put zero effort into it. I might not even answer that email. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think the biggest thing, yeah, just replace my name for a second in the, in the two field and with a male coach's name and see if you want to change anything about that email. And I think that's like the easiest way. I love that. To just sort of deal with any of it. God, it sucks that that would work, but you're, God, like, I'm just like, <laughs> it's so effective though. Yeah. That's where, people are like, <laughs> that's oh, where we're at. I don't want to, you know, make a comment about a body part in an email anymore. Like, because I wouldn't do that to a male. <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I have a couple quicker bullet points here, and then I want to get into your coaching business. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, Carly's theory about the finite number of tears we have to cry. Can you elaborate on that? What is that? What am I talking about? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, well, I think we just was like, we mentioned that a little, we talked about it a little bit with um, big setbacks in climbing. And most of us that go through climbing for long enough are going to have something happen that is going to be hard. And, you know, I know people that have lost, lost people, um, major injuries, and kind of getting back into how climbing can become such a huge, huge part of our lives. And then when these setbacks happen, they really highlight maybe how big of a part of our lives climbing really is. And dealing with that can take a long time. And that's not just climbing related, but, you know, any setback. And so sort of like taking the mentality of like the only way through something is through it. And by not expressing the hard times and like, so I broke, I guess like I'll kind of share a little bit of my story. I broke my leg, but it been like about 14 months ago. Um, I did a tip fib fracture, snapped my leg in half and it was How'd pretty- you do that? I was climbing in Indian Creek and um, took a not very big fall, but a very strange fall, but it was near the top of the cave route. Um, So if you're familiar with that route, it's like, it's this really cool route. It starts in this room, but, um, and then it goes, you know, like, like tight ones, um, corner climb and the wall behind you though, gets closer and closer and closer to you as you go up almost. And then I was kind of in this weird spot between couldn't quite like stem out onto it and go chimney style, but I was, it was also very close to me. And, um, you know, in hindsight, I didn't, my risk assessment lens wasn't wide enough because I was like, looking. I was like, this gear is great. Like I'm tired. I've been climbing a lot of days in a row. So like my last day here and the gear is good. And I didn't consider that as like a potential, uh, a potential risk that I was taking. Um, but if you fall at that spot, you can totally break your leg in half as it turns out, um, <laughs> by hitting the wall behind you. Ow. And, you know, there's a lot of times that don't have walls behind us. I just wasn't like really thinking about it. But so when I took a fall, it's kind of like, it was maybe like less than a body length, but it was like twisty and my leg just like caught something on the wall behind me and my right leg just went 90 degrees the wrong way in the middle of the shin. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, sorry, I would even like listening. That's like queasy. It was the gnarliest thing I've ever seen. It was on my own body and uh, looked down at my leg and uh had a moment where I saw my tibia trying to compound fracture and you know obviously it was like it was interesting how I reacted in it um so you know that's something that happens you're not just like just metric shitloads of adrenaline going through all you know you're totally your body is totally entering that mode and it was I just remember looking at my tibia trying to come out of my leg and having the moment of like if that comes out of my leg this is a helicopter rescue but you're hanging, you have a dislocation, you're hanging from a rope, you can use gravity to your assistance. And so I turned my body over and was able to like, kind of like, I basically like pull, I hung my leg and then pulse, pulse. So I'd like self-reduced it. So it was like, brought it back in line. Um, in that That's, moment, I would. That is so never, hardcore, dude. <laughs> like, uh, I would never do that to somebody else. You I'm know, turning like, green over here. I'm sorry. Uh, I would never do that to, um, 
like somebody else. Yeah. I would never be like, yes, let me grab your leg. That's clearly broken. In. But in that moment, I really thought that was the right thing to do to avoid like a compound fracture, um, which would have been significantly gnarlier. Um, but anyway, so <laughs> it's just kind of like, I just remember doing that and then it being back in line and just being like, what in the shit did I just do? Um, and then going down to the hospital. But anyway, so I had this like really quite significant injury that couched me, you know, I was on, you know, surgery plates, eight screws. I was on the couch for three months and, um, it was really hard. And, you know, that initial, like, we're going to get through this. And I was like, I could still just crouching around the weight room at Spire, <laughs> like doing everything I could. But the reality was like, I was really, really bummed. And as like the, you know, second month wore on, it became hard and, uh, like sitting with that and not, we have all these ways that we deal with like some of these setbacks and these really hard, um, hard moments for us. And one of the things that we do or that I hear people do is sort of discount and discredit the pain or the hardship that they're going through with like, well, like somebody else has it worse or like, at least I didn't something worse. And that kind of shields us from feeling or like discounts the way that we're feeling, mm. which prevents us from actually like working through those feelings. Yeah. Um, so kind of addressing that and yeah, just being sad, you know, like I love going climbing in the Gallatin Canyon outside of just outside of Bozeman, you know, I, so many of my friends were, that's how I was spending time with my friends that I'm close to. And, um, now I'm just sitting on the couch. And so <laughs> kind of going to that, like, I was really bummed out about it, but in order to like work through it, I actually needed to allow myself to be bummed out about it. And I needed to like cry the tears, you know, that I needed to cry. And eventually by allowing myself to do that and feel bummed and cry when I needed to cry, eventually I kind of ran out of tears to cry about it. Hmm. Right. And like, because I actually did go through it by going through it um, and not avoiding it. And I think, I think about that sometimes about like um, the longer you put off the tears, the longer you're going to be in it. And actually the most efficient way to get through something and like the best way that I've found and coaching athletes that are coming off of injuries or coming back from injuries is like allowing space for that, um, for that to exist because then like, you'll actually work through it. And eventually you'll come to a point where you don't have any tears left to cry over it. And that's like, maybe something I feel about climbing setbacks and also life setbacks is like, eventually you you kind of dry up about it because you have actually gone through it it's just really hard and um, yeah something that i think is important to let yourself do i love that i love that i um i want to share a story of my own that feels relevant mm -hmm. right now i've actually told it once yeah. on the podcast before but i think it's worth talking about again because you're so so right like you broke your leg you didn't get you know you didn't get diagnosed with stage four cancer which is great but like of course you're yep. going to feel that. You love climbing. All your friends are climbers. Like that's your whole, that's such a big part of your life. And when that gets ripped away, like that leaves a really big gaping wound, right? And mm -hmm. um, I remember when I had my first finger injury, you know, climbing, climbing, it's so funny. Like you get a finger injury and it's just like, I, I feel silly even saying it out loud to you. You broke your leg and it's just a finger, but 
you know, like it's so devastating. It mm-hmm. y- you can't you can't hangboard even. You can't do anything. You're just like, okay, I'm gonna wait for six months to be able to do the thing I love again. And I just remember feeling <clears throat> just kind of like pathetic. I, I like I felt really bad about how bad I felt, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. about the finger. I was like, dude, I, I should be able to just like absorb this little bump in the road, use this as an opportunity, be positive. And I'm so bummed about it. And that's so lame because I know how petty it is in like the bigger picture of life. And I was living with uh, some roommates in Bend at the time. And one of my roommates um, has a chronic illness. And I just remember her telling me one day, it was so kind and gracious, but she said basically, exactly what you're saying right now, you know, because I, I think I made some comment. I was like, oh, I'm fine. It's, you know, it's like, it's nothing compared to what you go through every day, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, don't do that. You don't have to do that. Like, I really feel strongly that any setback, like any suffering is real suffering. And it's important to acknowledge it and let yourself feel that. And I just kind of, I just felt this like really big wash of emotions, letting myself feel that loss, you know, and letting that be okay. And also just like really appreciating how much climbing means to me in that moment, you know, like feeling, feeling that grief from this silly little finger. So yeah, uh, yeah, it it was, I think about, oh, go ahead. Yeah. I was just, I was just going to finish just saying like that has, that was such a gift that she gave me. And yeah. she's, she's still, like, like, she has a chronic illness. She still deals with this thing every day and my finger's healthy and I get to climb again. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, the cosmic scales feel uneven, but it was such a gift that she gave me and I'll never forget it. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of amazing. Yeah, I think when we like take on that, like it's not that big of a deal, I'm gonna be positive. I'm gonna get through it and just kind of like force that, um, I'm not hurting. We cannot, I mean, I'm a person that definitely values bravery. And I think to some extent we maybe like feel like that's a brave thing to do. And I think I always just like would offer the the thought of like, is that the brave thing you're to do or is allowing yourself to feel that loss exhibiting more bravery or just mm. as much? Ah, I'm enjoying this conversation a lot. Okay, what else we, What else do we have here? Um, do you want to talk more about seeing injuries as an opportunity as long as we're yeah, kind of yeah, on that topic? Yeah, totally. Because um, that's what you did. Like you, you know, you dove even deeper into this trad world and recently did the rainbow, rainbow wall, which we haven't talked about at all. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I, I think being injured and then coming back. So, right, like I went through this and tried my best to like do as much as I could in terms of like staying in shape. But the reality is that I was on, was mainly on the couch for, (laughs) for three months, you know? And so you come back and, you know, maybe you're able to climb, but whatever, you know, my ankle wasn't like, I definitely went top roping like the day I was cleared to walk, you know what I mean? I was pushing it a little bit. I'll actually never forget this. I like struggled top rope to 510 and and I came down and I had like tears of joy welling up in my eyes Mm. because I was finally back in this beautiful place with people that I like enjoyed being around. And it sort of solidified to me that I loved climbing for climbing. You know, if I was so happy climbing a 510 on top rope with like an almost functional angle. (laughs) So I think that was like actually kind of valuable to be like, no, this like this thing really just I mean it means so much to me outside of performance you know like I was so happy to be back but um 
yeah in that though just the the recognition of like yeah like i'm not climbing that strong right now and i you know and i am kind of limited to what i can do until like i'm through pt opened up the field of view a little bit of like okay like now what else can i do to like stay involved and like still have this experience that's just as fulfilling without performance being a big part of it um and so you know just like for the first time ever like was involved in learning about development and did like okay well i can't climb 513 right now but like i could get faster and more efficient at climbing more moderate gear climbs you know that's a realm that i'd never like dip my toes in for an extended period of time and just kind of continue and see it as like an opportunity to like experiment with those things and see like do i like maybe like really like bouldering maybe i really like development maybe i really like track climbing and like seeing what kind of like sticks as something that is enjoyable and um yeah i just feel like I don't think I would have explored those things as much or I wouldn't have been like as open to just totally new experiences without performance being something I was considering as well. You know, I was like totally open, no expectations on performance. And that kind of, I think is a big piece of like why I'm interested in doing bigger climbs, more trad climbing. I couldn't so much pull hard, but I could try to get better at crack climbing. You know what I mean? And like allow that skill to develop. And, uh, it just kind of, op- you know, that injury was super shitty. I don't want, I hope nobody ever breaks their leg like that on the cave route ever again, you know, but it, it, and I think actually it was, you know, you know, Taylor, Taylor mentioned, I was talking to her about this and she was like, injuries just, they create space mm. is one thing that she said. And I think it created space for me to just kind of explore some of these other realms of climbing that I hadn't, um, hadn't had time to because I was so focused on other things around sport climbing. And so I attribute my interest in this other world to getting that injury. And it's brought a lot of joy in to my climbing and it's added just more longevity to it because I'm like, Oh man, like I want to, I still love sport climbing. Don't get me wrong. I love sport climbing, but it's like, man, I want to do that. And I want to continue to get better in this realm and feel like, um, more well-rounded. And I think, you know, my goals used to be a little bit more grade focused. My goal right now is to just be able to climb five, 12, anything, any amount of pitches, any style, any rock type, anything that's five, 12. I want to not have to like look in the guidebook and be like, Oh, but there's a wide pitch. I don't want to have to be like, Oh, there's a number five. There's like an off with it. Oh, I don't want to leave that. I want to not, I want to be like, Oh Yeah let's do that. You know, I have the skills in all of these things to do. Um, so it's, yeah, kind of broadened my horizon in a really fun way that, um, yeah, it just feels like I'm just like, it just feels like I'm just getting started. You know, I've been doing this thing for 10 years. And as of like six months ago, just felt like I have this whole other world open to me. And now I just feel like I'm just getting started again. And I'd like, that's like totally invigorating. That's so invigorating. That's so cool. I love that story. And I, I mean, that's so cool about climbing. There's so many ways you can pursue climbing and enjoy it and become better. And I feel that way. I've been climbing for close to 15 years now, and I feel like I'm just getting started in this kind of like (laughs) new identity, this new like world of steep 
thuggy sport climbing. Yeah, you know, it's it's awesome. It's so exciting. Yeah. What's your favorite? Uh, or where are you, are you in Washington still right now? Where are you at? Yes, I'm in Washington. I'm actually parked in my parents' driveway right now, where I grew <laughs> up. Yeah. <laughs> I get Wi-Fi from um, the van from their house. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. What's your favorite kind of? Uh, area or rock type that you've like in terms of like doing steeper thuggier climbing uh what's some of the spots that you've been like oh yeah i really like this it's kind of three it's it's kind of okay it's kind of become like three spots over the last year that i've really fallen in love with and hmm. it's funny because i <laughs> i keep thinking about like where might i want to put down roots you know and like really invest more time and i just like when I'm in Colorado, I'm in love with Colorado. And when I'm down in Utah, I'm in love with Utah. And when I go to Waco, I'm, I fall in love with, with Texas and Waco. So, but yeah, yeah. it's, it's really those three. It's like Rocky mountain, the bouldering up in the park, it's Waco tanks in Texas. And then it's St. George, Utah. And that yeah. one, I think I really do love sport climbing. I, I, I love bouldering as well, but I always, even when I like get really hooked on bouldering and have goals and like I'm feeling progress and whatever, it all still feels like it's part of this bigger path towards the sport climbs I ultimately want to do, if that makes sense. Okay. It's like yeah. all feeding into that goal. So mm -hmm. St. George to me, I think feels kind of at the top of that list as far as, yeah, j just the, it just provides like the, the routes that I dream of climbing, um, mm -hmm. Yeah, there's so much there to continue to progress through to get closer to to those routes that I want to do. So, yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. I'm a big St. George fan yeah. as well, I will say. What's your favorite what's your favorite area in St. George or favorite climb? Or do you have a favorite climb? Oh man, who's interviewing who now? No, I love this. Sorry, um, sorry. I'm just scared. I haven't I been to St. George in a minute. I like talking. That's great. Now I want to ask you all the same questions. Um, <laughs> well, right now I I just came from there. I spent five weeks there and spent the whole time projecting one route. I was climbing with Joe Kinder out in the hills and just was trying a route that he put up called Joe Exotic. Um, we think it's probably 14A, hard 14A, something like that, which would be my hardest. So of course, that that's like the only thing I'm thinking about <laughs> right now as far <laughs> as that area. But there's yeah. there's a ton. I mean, I've, I love the, the Hurricane. I find that just so fun. Um, really hard. Like I had to really learn to love that place. Like that place, I've spent time at it for each of the last three years, just a little bit. Um, and I've, I've really felt the like pain of that kind of reinventing myself process at that crag in particular, like, God, I suck at this. Like I'm getting my ass kicked, you know? And then the next season, like, this is kind of starting to feel more fun, you know? And then this year, like, ooh, I think this could be really fun, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really Yeah, cool. that three years is like, I think that's important to recognize. It's like, yeah, it just takes time. That's a long time. And I've been climbing yeah. full time and doing yeah. some training that whole time. So yeah. it takes time. Um, but then, yeah, also the Cathedral Wailing Wall. I love that spot. And then there's, there's a number of others that I just haven't spent as much time at yet. But um, there's so much there. It's crazy. Yeah. So, what about yeah, for you? Which, what is, um, as far as that vision you have of, you know, not even having to look at the guidebook to climb 512, like, are you more drawn towards longer multi-pitch things right now? Or what are the areas that you feel really at home in or, or drawn to? Yeah, I definitely feel like 
the most, you know, like the wailing wall, that is like comfort zone. That is like, like in terms, like I know we're talking about like multi-pitch, but you know, I, I've kind of taken this, uh, approach to it where like, I'll give myself like, you know, I was in Mexico for five weeks in El Salto climbing, you know, like Tufa, you know, bouldery to rest sporty sport climbing, you know, and like that does feel like, you know, I know how to know how to work through that. And that feels very at home. And then, so like doing that for a little bit and then doing like, okay, now I'm going to be in red rocks for four or five weeks and like on a rock type, I'm not as familiar with doing gear things. And then, um, you know, giving myself time to go back to the comfort zone a little bit and then, then expand and then go back to the comfort zone a bit and then expand. Um, so right now I think I'm just, I'm the most excited about climbing on granite. And I think I've been climbing a lot of granite around kind of this Lake Tahoe area and checking that out. Um, just like letting those skills develop, particularly in like crack and dihedrally type terrain, um, to hopefully, you know, do some more climbing in like index Yosemite, you know, like eventually spending time in those places. Um, you know, it's a balancing act between coaching, you know, like I'm not a full-time, I have, you know, quite a bit of work that I do on a, on a weekly basis as well with this climbing, but I think in general drawn towards granite right now and, um, not a particular route, but granite just in general is like, man, a good granite climb. I don't know if there's, there's a whole lot better (laughs) than that. So, um, yeah, I'm kind of following, yeah, the soak is certainly for that rock type right now. And, um, just trying to get on it in every form that I can and allow that to develop probably over the next year, you know, and having the recognition that it's like, we don't need to go from zero to, to granite master and nor will we in a month, but being like, okay, I can pick this for a year and let it develop as it will. And I'll probably always sprinkle in some limestone sport climbing in there too, to like, you know, just you're like, oh yeah. Like it's always funny when you get on a new rock type and you're just like, like, yeah, I feel this way in Red Rocks and I've actually spent like a fair amount of time down there, there at this point, maybe like two months. And I still feel like I, the route reading on sandstone is hard for me. It takes me longer. And it's like, but when I'm on limestone, I'm like, oh, this, this is clearly what the, the sequence is. So just allowing that route reading to develop and having a bunch of fun. That's kind of where I'm at right now. <laughs> yeah. That's so, that's really interesting actually, because my comfort zone is still, like I would say it's like Leavenworth, Washington. Like my background okay. is in granite, granite bouldering specifically. Mm-hmm. And every time I go out on the road and like get a little stronger, get a little better at climbing, whatever, I seem to be able to come back and just feel right at home in Leavenworth on the boulders. So it's yeah. it's funny because totally. that um, and I, I I like the granite like bigger granite stuff as well like climbing on Snow Creek Wall and in the enchantments and stuff I've done just some mm-hmm. of that, but yeah that's what feels really home for me a really comfort zone and then limestone the the thing about granite is it just doesn't yield like the type of sport climbs that I feel really drawn to and want to do someday but I actually. I don't think I love limestone yet. Like I'm maybe getting there, but it's so different. There's no texture. It's slippery. It's like sharp and slippery at the same time somehow. And it's so textured. There's there's like a lot of little secrets. Um, I, I don't know. Yeah. It, it's still kind of like, you know, when you try to load like a, a comp- 
computer program, like Logic Pro, for instance, every time I load like a big file, you get that like little colorful spinning beach ball. That's what my brain does. I like, I'm on like a limestone slab and I look down for a foothold and it's like, uh, just, uh-huh. yeah. yeah, yeah, so it's well, funny. Well, you've described how I feel in a dihedral. Okay, great. Yeah. So it's funny. <laughs> it's we're like, like, we're like opposite. I'm like stretching yeah. myself in this steep limestone thuggy style and then yeah. going, going back to the boulders in Leavenworth is like my fun playtime. Sometimes I think that like discussion on rock type and style um, deserves more more time and like really how you know obviously rock climbing is very much a skill based sport but like how route reading it takes a while in a different spot and I think that's something that is talked to athletes about and you know is like you go somewhere for the first time like I you know like the first time I was in El Salto I had never touched a tufa and just recognizing it takes some time to figure out how to read that yeah style of climbing and that's any you know any you can train your pace off and your max hang can be like you know herculean and all of that but when you're like stemmed in a like <laughs> when i was stemmed in uh like pitch 11 on rainbow wall on the dihedral in like that dihedral that max hang number didn't matter right? it was just <laughs> i was just sitting there just like it was like the jeopardy theme song was playing and i was like dude, 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 dude. <laughs> Yeah, I know I'm going to that ledge, but like I didn't even, you know, and like the the palming the palming stuff that you get to do in that sort of like train, you know, isn't wasn't the second nature and like, but how cool to start to realize that it can become that way if you dedicate the time to it. Um, just the recognition that it takes some time and that like, hopefully we love climbing so much that we're psyched to put in that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to dig more into that, like how much time we invest in ourselves as climbers and the value of that. Because I thought that was such an interesting conversation that we had. And I'd love to basically just have that conversation again. Um, really quickly, though, just as a quick tangent, because I threw out the rainbow wall, like rainbow wall, like everyone knows what it is. And I, I'm getting bad recently about like forgetting to add context. But can you just describe sure. what that is? Sure. So... Uh, the original route on the rainbow wall. So this is um, a climb that I looked at for a while um, out in, it's in Red Rocks. It's in Juniper Canyon in, um, in Red Rocks and it's 14 pitches. It's just, it's like a mixed, mixed climb. So there's certainly bolts on it. There's a lot of gear as well. Um, and I remember I was climbing the wall is just beautiful. It's totally beautiful. So I just, I remember the first time I was in Red Rocks, I was climbing this other route called Nightcrawler. Like it's across the canyon. It's like over on like the brownstone wall and just climbing this other route. And at each belay, just looking over at the rainbow wall, like, God damn, that's pretty. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just like, wow. You know, it's like, um, the, it's called, this is like the green streaks and the red of the sandstone. And, you know, so it's, it is like very multicolored, um, and it's like kind of sits, it like looms perched back in the canyon. It sort of has a bit of like a, you know, there's kind of a real element to it, I feel like, you know, and I just remember being like, you know, had at that point in time, you know, like less track climbing experience and just being like, wow, I really want to climb that thing. Um, and that being motivating for me to like continue to learn to climb track better and, um, evolve crack climbing skills and different things like that. So it was like kind of this motivator. 
that maybe I didn't actually like write down, like, I want to climb the rainbow wall or like, but I think like subconsciously I was like, like, I knew I wanted to do that. And I was inspired by that. And so then like through other trips to Red Rocks, I've got to see that wall from a lot of angles, like coached an athlete that, uh, that climbed that wall. So I would also get, I was also got like descriptions of it. I was like, oh man, like, I really want to do this thing. And so this year when I went down to Red Rocks, um, you know, certainly like a year more of experience than like the last time I had looked at it and then spent just three weeks just getting in like red rock shape, you know, getting used to like 90 minute approaches and climbing a lot of pitches in a day and climbing trad more efficiently. I think, you know, cause like if you're going to do a 14 pitch climb, you know, not just being able to climb the things, but also like for the moderate pitches, being able to do those more quickly. Um, and it's like mostly 511 up to like 12B. Is that right? Yeah, I think it's like 12 minus. Okay. Um, yeah, it's like the hardest, the hardest two pitches. Um, but yeah, like, you know, pretty just seemed like there's quite a bit of 511. And, and then there's like three pitches that are kind of like traversy, wandery to just kind of get you over to another dihedral where like the, it's like pitch 11 and 12 are sort of like, the crux pitches and also you know walking into like yeah like i've sure like i've sent a lot of that grade but have i sent a lot of that grade after climbing 10 pitches of climbing Mm -hmm. and that kind of fitness and like so yeah i like spent the i was down there for like three weeks and i was just trying to like climb as much as i could you know and like climb any style all the like big routes or whatever i could um to just kind of build up that type of like capacity fitness which is different than certainly the kind of fitness that you build up if you're trying to project a hard route in Osalto, right? Like where you want to get five good goes on a project or a project. But this is like, I want to be able to try to, you know, potentially on site a pitch 11 and pitch 12. Right. So anyway, I was super psyched to, to climb that and I did not on site it. Uh, but I was, um, felt like I learned a lot and my partner Casey that I did it with, he did on site it. So it was like a really, really awesome experience. And he has a lot more track climbing experience and a lot more, you know, just big route experience, like doing bigger wall, things like that. And so, um, it was cool to go from, okay, took the fall to being like support mode and, uh, just get to experience that. And then walk away being like, I'm going to go climb that route again someday. Cause like, I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to do it. But, uh, yeah, there's certainly, yeah. That like kind of dihedrally terrain is like a little bit harder for me to read, but I was psyched, you know, I was like climbing in the 11, 11 plus range above gear, which is like, you know, in onsite style, which is something that, you know, is still in that grade relatively new to me. So I was like, I feel like I learned a lot and That's awesome. I was, did end up send, I think I did end up sending, you know, 12 of the 14 pitches, which I was psyched on and, um, on pitch 12, which I fell on, just had a moment of like totally screaming, just absolutely giving it, you know, trying to <laughs> onsite that pitch, Yeah, just like, you know, entering that like real try hard of like, okay, I'm not really sure if these feet are in the right spot, but I'm getting pumped. So I just need to like throw to this pod and then like feel like screaming as your finger lock, lock slips out, you know, like actually get pretty psyched on that. Just like entering that zone where you actually give enough fucks that you're willing to scream and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and totally did that. And I fell out of it and pulled back on and finished the the pitch. And I just remember being like, still really, really psyched. And, uh, that was a pretty awesome thing. And I, 
I think, you know, that wall will continue to kind of stick in my head as it has for the last year of like when I'm going to get to go back and do it again. Mm -hmm. And that was just, that was recent. That was like a month ago. Yeah, it was about a month ago. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. So you didn't, you yeah. didn't go back yet. You're planning to go back. Yeah, I will. I think I would like to, I think I would just like to get more volume and more like Dahid really train. And, you know, I'm familiar with what the pitches are now, but yeah, I think a little bit more sport climbing type, you know, like more like power endurance type fitness in leading into that would have made that a better scenario. Cause I was like, it's in this interesting world where you're combining, I was getting a lot better at like climbing trad more efficiently, but the reality was I was climbing like a lot of just like five ten trad, never getting pumped. Okay. Or like five eleven mine. You know, it's maybe like five up to like five eleven, but I wasn't climbing like consistent five eleven that was kind of pumpy. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so I think if I were to go back and redesign that month prior to getting on the rainbow wall, I would have added in some sport climbing days. But you have to keep in mind too that like I needed more skill in trad climbing at that time. And now I have that. Now if I go back, adding sport climbing days will be be a way to like bring myself along physically now that I have like the technical skills. So it's such a complex problem, this climbing performance thing that we try to solve, but you know, we learn and um yeah, I will go back though. I will go You're back breaking though. it down like an engineer. Yeah. I don't I don't, <laughs> I know, I don't even totally. have to ask you any questions. You just answered all my questions. That's great. <laughs> Cool. Um, <laughs> let's, mind. let's dig into creating a coaching business. Yeah. Um, and specifically, let's go right back to what I teased us with earlier, which is placing more value on ourselves as climbers and as coaches. And like the thing that you said that just was, that just kind of hit differently, you know, I'd never really thought about it in this way, but you were talking about how long it takes to grow these skills like if someone's a v11 climber they've had to really really work hard at it and you were like it was harder for me to climb 13b than it was to get a master's in engineering i think you said that is that right yeah, yeah. and yeah. you said that yeah. and i was just like wow same for sure like i have put so much more investment and time and effort into my rock climbing i mean it's got to be like quadruple what I put into engineering at least maybe more you know it's but we we just it's fun and it's what we want to do anyway and so we don't really value that I, I just think that's such an interesting idea that I'd never really spent time thinking about that yeah so as a climbing coach and as a business owner and as someone entering into this world where um Actually, I'm just going to open it up to you. Like what feels important to you as far as how you're creating your business, how you're valuing yourself and your other coaches, um, as far as that goes, how are you taking all that time into account and what do you want to change about how climbing coaching is done? Yeah. Yeah. I do think that's a, one of the values that I hold very near and dear to my heart is, um, yeah, that like, just because you enjoy it doesn't mean you should get paid less. And that climbing coaches, and I know some absolutely amazing climbing coaches should get paid in a way that's commensurate with the scarcity of their skills, mm. not how much they enjoy it. And because we go and we get, you know, let's say like I have a master's degree in structural engineering and it was hard work and I put a lot of time and dedication into it and you walk into an interview or a job with that and society has sort of conditioned you to think that that's worth something 
um, whether, you know, maybe it's worth more because it was so hard or you didn't enjoy it. Um, and it carries sort of this like, oh, this business card with a title on it that people respect. So you should get like paid a certain amount. And seeing like a lot of the climbing coaches that I know and that I really respect have spent so much time being able to climb at an elite level and then also learning how to coach athletes that are at an elite level is really considerable. And um, I think for a coach to want to continue to coach and for that to be a sustainable thing for them, they need to be paid in a way that is like somebody with a master's degree in engineering um, and that their enjoyment of that doesn't make it any less valuable is something that's like really important. So for me, yeah, like getting paid in a way that is like measure with the scarcity of your skills, I think is an important part of my value system as I expand project direct and bring on other coaches of specific kind of niche specialties um, and allow them to do the things that they really love and that should still help them live a life they also feel comfortable with. Um, so that, and I think another part of it of like value that I hold pretty near and dear to my heart is like transparency. And that can kind of take on a few, go in a few different ways. You know, like one, I think I need to be sure that I'm operating. Like I, I definitely take into like heart-centered leadership and how do I create a space where I don't have to have my guard up because of my humanness is one thing that's allowing me to be such a good coach. So if I feel like I'm creating or allowing a space to exist where people aren't feeling like they can be fully human and exist in all sides of themselves, that's actually detrimental to the athletes that work with Project Direct because they aren't going to get as much of an experience And this is, you know, like we do so much more than training. And I'm like specifically talking about like managing, you know, like performance under pressure and planning seasons and um, head game and all of these things. Those things are self-evident, like just vulnerable. They're just vulnerable. And so the space that Project Direct holds needs to allow for that and actually encourage it. So embracing the full human side of things. Yes, we want to be super dialed in our programming, but um, for training plans. Absolutely. But, uh, the recognition that we're, that we're humans and so are the athletes that we coach is important. Um, and also say transparency too, because, um, you know, thinking about being an employee and things that were hard for me as an employee or things that rub me the wrong way as an employee or things that like, you know, now being a business owner, I have the opportunity to maybe change. And so I had an experience that definitely rubbed me the wrong way in the engineering world. And that's like, you know, and I think a lot of corporate America is like, you don't know how much everybody around you is getting paid. Right. And they like keep it kind of hush hush. And there's like the back room, you know, feels like like back room negotiation things. And it's just sort of been indoctrinated as like the way to go about it, but it's actually kind of, feels very like mob-esque where like nobody knows what each other is getting paid and we're all like figuring it out behind the scenes. I don't know. It only is detrimental to the employees is my thought. But I had an experience where I found out that, um, that somebody that I was actively training and mentoring was making more money than me in my engineering position. Mm. And, um, that was a bummer because what it did is it made me feel super undervalued or just not valued generally. And I think it's an important leadership quality to understand that people will give the most of their job if they feel valued. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so as that really is like transparency is just being like really clear and open with the coaches that I work with about exactly, exactly all, you know, they're, you know, all the coaches are very aware of what any other coach is going to make and how their contract is set up. And I think that's certainly easier to do on like a smaller scale business. I think it's obvious, like I'm speaking to my own business, but that's been important for me because it's really important for me that people feel valued and people feel valued when you're real with them and you're like, this is what's going on and I'm here to support you and I appreciate what you're doing. Um, So that's something that's certainly important to me. That's like come from my background and that's certainly shaped my, my values on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So those are kind of some of the things, you know, so like, like humanness, transparency are super, is super important. And, you know, helping coaches make a living that is actually legitimate and it's not like they're getting paid nickels and dimes from, from a gym that, you know, I don't know, like maybe that's changing drastically. It's just sort of like, I would hope that we can all, we can start valuing coaches um, a little more highly just generally as an industry. Yeah. I love that. Um, And yeah, I I mean, I've had that experience in the climbing industry. I've worked in the climbing industry as well. And of course, every business is different. Every place is different. But you get that so often where businesses can afford to basically pay their workers as little as possible because people want to work there, you know, and if someone, if it's not enough for someone or they can't sustain it and they leave, some young psyched kid is going to walk in the door and be psyched to get a job. Um, but it, you, you said something in our first call. I mean, you just said it now a little bit, but I'd, I'd love to hear you elaborate on it. You said something about like how, like, what does it mean if we send this message to people that if they enjoy something, they shouldn't get paid as much? I just, do you have more thoughts on that? Because again, like it's so obvious, but I'd never really connected it fully. And and it just, you were able to sh- kind of illuminate that in a, in a new way for me. I thought that was really cool. Do you have more thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. That, um, yeah, kind of breaking. I think there's this underlying thing where it's like working hard or like not enjoying the work is sort of virtuous, maybe. And um, like, yeah, backbreaking work, you know, you know, work to the bone, like these kind of things, you know, like I've been in enough corporate offices where people almost like subtle brag about overworking. I've been in corporate offices where people just explicitly brag about overworking. Or that. <laughs> like, yeah, they yeah, just yeah. take tons of pride in like how miserable they are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's like, damn, like what kind of, what kind of, I don't think, you know, culturally, like it's really hard on these like macro evolution of, of ideas and viewpoints. It's, you know, you can't really pinpoint where it's from, but you can see that it's going in the wrong direction. <laughs> like, right. What kind of society are we in where we're like, Brett, like what we have to be proud about is how miserable we are and how much we're overworking and right. um, somehow that that is virtuous and anyway and so kind of like how do we change that and i think part of that is valuing rest but also letting people enjoy the job that they do and because they enjoy it doesn't mean that they don't get paid for it right because that's yeah because that's implicit in that right like that's implicit in that attitude is that if you actually enjoy like you shouldn't enjoy your work Mm -hmm. but i mean you've seen it i've seen it like i i'm bringing so much more 
energy and value to what I do because I love it. Like people are way better at their job when they love what they do. So why would we be pushing people away from that? I think you said something along mm-hmm. those lines and I was just like, mm-hmm. wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Boom, you know, like kind of yeah. mind blast moment there, but. Yeah, well, you know, when you like, when you quit an engineering career on a whim, you have some time to think about things. <laughs> I guess, <laughs> like, you know, like spend some time and I have a lot of like time in the car thinking about things. But yeah, like that, it's exactly right. And then the other element of that is like, okay, you want to get in somebody that like loves their job. And if they really enjoy and are passionate about what they're doing and they're getting paid well, they're going to do a better job. But you also think about like long-term growth. They're also going to be interested in developing the program. You know, like if we're talking about like a youth program and a gym, if we're talking about, you know, if if the person feels like, they love what they're doing and it can be lucrative, you know, that's where you get innovation where somebody's going to like step forward and be like, Hey, I have this idea. And I think it'd be really cool if, or like, you know, it would be more efficient and allow me to spend more time in my zone of genius is if we did <laughs> this, whatever it is. And, um, but if you're a, if you're underpaid and you're feeling undervalued and you have an idea and you just got off work, you're just gonna be like, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm not going to like, right. you know what I mean? You you don't feel like you have any uh, role to play, but if you feel like you're operating within your zone of genius and you love it, then you can really step into like whatever way that you might lead and whatever idea that you might have and allow that to, you're going to actually have the energy to let that propagate, I think. Um, and so if I have any pull in the general trajectory of the universe which i'm i'm you know pretty skeptical about i would say that like i hope that it would be to encourage development of spaces and jobs that are like that that's awesome i love that um you just used the phrase zone of genius twice Mm -hmm. which i've never heard before and i i'm immediately intrigued i love that what is your zone of genius carly oh man put me on the spot (laughs) Um, I, what would what would your who's your coach is it Casey that works with you yeah 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 if I were to ask Casey that question what do you think Casey would say about you oh man um I'm asking you to brag think, about yourself so I know, go, so just please go for me, it like, you're, you're humble you're struggling right now but please <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> this is a of a good interviewer right you make me smart um okay I think that I think that um, I'm able to put together the pieces of the puzzle that take the physical training aspect of climbing, which is important, but hold and provide direction in the human side of things in a way that I think is missing from the climbing coaching industry. Um, So, you know, just being able to give really actionable direction on dealing with the head game side of things um, for a lot of different components of climbing and finding the right integration of how do we get training in there and how do we couple that all together and plan an athlete's like year with a wider lens that's going to help them develop over the course of a year. You know, hopefully we're sending harder things in less than a year, but I want this athlete to continue to have this awesome relationship with this sport for a decade. Mm. So, um, the human element of that comes into play. And um, I try to take that human element and empathize with it, but also give actionable tasks. 
I love that. And that kind of leads us back into cultivating longevity. Um, I know that's something that you've been, I mean, you already said you've been thinking about that a lot. That's something that was kind of a bigger bullet point, like a starred bullet point for me in this conversation. I want to make sure we spend more time on that. And I'm curious how you get buy-in from your clients about that element of it, because we're terrible at that, right? Like we all want what we want mm-hmm. now. Like we want results in six weeks and it's, we're, we're just, humans are categorically terrible at taking a really long view. Yeah. So <laughs> do you have any language that you like to use or questions you like to ask to get people thinking about and, and get buy-in about this long-term view of their own climbing? Sure. I think the best, one of the best ways to kind of elicit this from athletes is through questions. It's not that I need to tell them this is the way you should think about it, or this is, you know, it's like asking questions. I saw this, somebody talked to me about this. It was like, yeah, the best teachers tell you where to look. They don't tell you what to see. Um, I feel like I've heard that and I'm probably, that's probably some famous quote for somewhere, but like, I do try to ask more questions than say like, here's what you should do. And sometimes I'll offer a reframe on like their answer, you know, but it's always an offering. It's never like, it's like, here's one way to consider it. And if you find that helpful, um, I'd love to chat about, about it more. And also the realization that as a coach, you're often just planting a seed. Mm. you know, that might not turn into anything for like three years. And I've had that experience as coaches of mine in the past. And like, where something I'll be like four years later, I'll be like, you know what? My soccer coach from high school was talking about this. (laughs) 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 And at the time I didn't want to hear it. You know what I mean? Right. (laughs) And that's okay. It's okay. Uh, And so how do we, so one thing that kind of helps to buy in on that, and it depends on if, if this is like a one-on-one athlete, meaning that we're doing training and head game and outdoor guidance and skills, like all the things, you know, if we're talking about like a one-on-one athlete, you know, it's like, all right, let's hit some compromise. Like they want to see numbers move. They want to feel stronger. We can do that hundred percent. You know what I mean? And sort of the, the way I kind of, if, if somebody comes to me and they really want to train and they're like, I really need my leg max hang to go up and need to become more powerful. And then I'm looking at their numbers and I'm like, man, I think that we'd have to do some skill work you know, is how do we find the compromise? Because it's important as a coach to program something that an athlete wants to do. I do see that as like a part of my role. And so it's like, all right, you know, we know you love this lift. We have these two low hanging fruits in your physical sort of acumen um, that we can address, which we can do. So psyched to give you that and help you move those numbers and program something. But here's what you're going to give me is you're going to give me some dedicated skill time And one of your days outdoors is going to be entirely for developing whatever skill that I want them to develop. And so getting a pairing of those things can offer a lot of buy-in from athletes because they're like, all right, she wants me to do do the eye contact drill all day at the crag, but I get one projecting day after that and I still get to train. Okay. All right. Like, (laughs) (laughs) right. We'll do it. We'll like, do okay, it. fair trade. Okay, fine. Fair, fair trade. And so, yeah, like, yeah, being a little bit, uh, being a little bit flexible with that um, as a coach, you know, even if I like don't want to give them max hangs, but I, I know <laughs> they want to see that number keep moving. Or, right. 
you just kind of do it depends on the athlete. You know, there's some athletes that come to me are like very skilled and they really just need a training plan. They just need to get stronger. And that is a totally valid, awesome thing too. So just like, it's so, there's so many tenants of climbing and then there's all these variables in climbing and there's all these variables and people, you can see my engineering coming out again. It's a multivariable like thing going on and a lot of them are interplaying. And so um, it's a very complex problem to find a solution for. And it's important that the athletes feel like they get to have some say in that and that they're like psyched on what they're doing, you know, at least half the time. Mm -hmm. And the other half they might hate me for, but, you know, we can get half and half. That might be good. (laughs) Awesome. I have to ask, I don't want to give away all your secrets, but um, what is the eye contact drill if you're willing to share that? Yeah, Yeah, that made me really curious. Yeah. Um, so I think this is a drill. I think there's like other names, of, but basically this is, um, as you're climbing, um, either the jammer or the crag is like making quote unquote eye contact with the foothold that you're looking to use, maintaining that eye contact with the foothold until you place your foot on it and trying to place your foot on it in such a way that you like need no, you don't need to adjust. You know, it's like coordin. You know, it's it is like a coordination thing too. If you've never done it, you know, or if the foothold is like way down, it takes some like core strength of like just some full kinetic chain business. But um, so you eye contact with the foothold. You watch that foothold until you place your foot on it as precisely as you can, and you don't let your eye contact break until that foot is on that hole. So certainly, like going to be working coordination but also you know i see so often people like look at the hold and then they move their foot and they're already looking up to the next hole Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then their foot bounces around on that hold for you know five seconds before they actually look down and replace it it's just like an efficiency suck certainly and um the idea you know with any skill acquisition is that you do it on not your little train, but on like more comfortable terrain. So you can just do it for like all your warm ups. Let's say just do the eye contact drill for your first two climbs of every day. <clears throat> the idea being that it becomes autonomous and that you eventually, that's just how you climb. Right. You know, as you always are doing that. Um, and so that's one that has, is really helpful. And especially if you haven't done any dedicated skill work that you could introduce into your climbing, like literally next time you go climbing, just do it for all of your warm ups. And what people notice is that then they'll start doing it on the harder routes and they're like, wow, that's helpful. (laughs) And then then they start doing it all the time. And uh, that leads to, you know, really the autonomy of that skill becoming a habit. Um, And so uh, one other kind of note about like skill acquisition, you know, like if you're going to do a skill thing like that, give it like eight to 10 weeks where that's what you're doing you know Mm. like you there's always a million skills that you can work on right and we kind of alluded to this how there's just like so many things you're like i gotta get better at 40 things all at once it's like no you don't like if you've never done anything like skill specific like that literally just do that for 10 weeks and just focus on one thing at a time and then once that becomes autonomous and that's just how you climb then you could add another one you know because now it's going to, that's so ingrained in you adding another skill drill or another idea is going to only feel like adding one thing again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that gets a lot easier to do once you have, have experienced it a couple times as well, because at first it feels like, well, I'm neglecting all these other things that are important, but mm-hmm. you know, you, you realize that you're really just like 
collecting badges. You know, you you just are <laughs> building this library of things and they don't just go away. So you get to build on it and build on it with each one. Mm-hmm. And I think what um what is really fascinating and illuminating to me as far as that goes is like how much your body the ability of your body to remember a specific climb. Like I might go project something and this has happened a lot in the last couple of years because I go on this circuit and I'm traveling, you know, mm-hmm. around the country. But you try a climb, you learn it, you spend a lot of time on it, you get close, whatever. And then you go away from that thing and you come back like literally a year later. And, you know, I maybe I won't have reviewed video. I won't have even hardly thought about it. And what do you know? Like, it's still there. I still, my body remembers the movements like I was just on it last oh, cool. week. And yeah, it's, it's like a miracle. It's crazy. But um, <laughs> I, 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 I think, I think we have so much more capacity to, uh, to ingrain and to hold skills and strengths if we invest enough time in them up front. So um, I love it. Totally. Yeah. That's really cool that you had that. I've had that. I've had that experience as well. Do you ever take, um, so you said you didn't review video. I was curious if you ever took video of yourself. I often do. I often do, but it, it, but it works even if you don't like that's, yeah. Yeah. So I've like, I've become less, um, concerned about, you know, Uh capturing all the beta, um, if something's really important to me, I still will. I'll film myself on the climb, the boulder or the sport climb. And I'll leave, even leave myself like a video voice memo. Like I'll film the climb and talk into the camera as I'm like pointing at different holds and stuff. That's mm-hmm. really helpful if you don't plan to come back for quite a while. Just remember like micro beta that took a while to learn, things like that. Um, but I'm, I'm always like kind of amazed, like pr- pleasantly surprised at how much is just there, like in your body. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that makes me wonder. So um, like talking about like effective imagery and um we don't have to like get into the weeds like too much on that but um so i've done some reading and history education about like you know when we're imagining climbs or trying to remember or learn things um and like if it's first person or third person that we imagine it in and like our different learning styles and um kind of the research behind that and uh one thing that i wonder because you mentioned that you have a voice memo to yourself and you host a podcast. <laughs> Seems like auditory for you really sparks, you know, whatever it is that you're trying to imagine or recall or learn. And I think that's like, I don't know, probably not a coincidence. And so I'm pretty like hands-on or visual. And so like for me having the video or like in my notes, I talk about like the way the holds feel in my hands or something like that, like that cues it for me. Mm. And so I'm just like, uh, but I think it's interesting. So like in sort of this whole like discussion on like imagery, which is, so there's like visualization, which is like actually visualizing it, like using your sense of sight. Um, and then imagery, which goes into like all five senses, but also goes into like your emotional response to things like mm. imagining the stress you would feel at that point on the route. Um, imagining what the stimulus that would cue that stress is and how that emotion, whether it's what feel in your body, like all of those things kind of embody this bigger umbrella term of imagery. Um, and like the research on it, you know, if you think about like, if you're imagining or visualizing yourself climbing, you know, there's all these ways that you can think about it. And what pers- I found it really fascinating 
So there's like first person perspective. So that's you closing your eyes and imagining what it's like from your viewpoint to climb the climb. Then there's like the third person perspective, which is imagining looking at yourself climbing the climb from another, another perspective. And um, in terms of like performance, it actually doesn't matter so much which one you default to, but what matters is your ability to control that image in your mind Hmm. and manipulate it and change it. And like, Oh, rewind. I've messed up that part. I'm going to go back up the climb, like doing all of that in your mind. And that's something that you can work on, which is cool. Mm -hmm. But it, you know, obviously if you don't have, if, if you're not a visual person, maybe it takes a different flavor or like, you know, I'm getting the feeling that you're more like auditory. Yeah. And so like, I want just, this makes me, it makes my <laughs> wheels start spinning about like what that looks like for you and how you can take what you already know works for your kind of learning style and like expand on it or like make it more controllable or more, you know, drawing in the auditory component of the climb to your imagery. Mm. Just makes me, makes my wheels spin. I love it. About like how this would work. That's awesome. I mean, yeah, I think you're totally right. I think there's definitely something there to the auditory thing because I'm definitely an auditory learner. Like I- And music. And music, yes. Um, But I I default to podcasts and audiobooks instead of reading a Mm -hmm. book. And I read kind of slow because I actually sound out all the words in my head. And it's really hard for me to not do that. And- Um, And I, but I learn really deeply. Like if I take my time and go through a chapter, like I really, Mm -hmm. really absorb the language. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But I prefer to just listen to people talk. And that's how I, you know, I I have like a lot of the light, a lot of the light bulb moments in my life have come from little subtle things, you know, a throwaway comment that just clicks in that moment with that context, with that nuance, whatever. And that's a huge, you know, obviously that's why I do what I do. And I think I'm, I think the visual thing is important for me as well. Like I get a lot of value out of filming myself. I think that's been a huge, that's had a huge positive impact on my climbing in the last like five years. I started doing that um, when I had a, a home Woody in my garage and I could film myself on everything without feeling weird about it. Mm-hmm. I learned so much from doing that and that was so helpful. Uh, but the auditory thing, as far as capturing beta, I'll just throw it out there as a tool for people because it's it's so efficient, you know? And it's it's funny, I actually started sending voice messages lately. You know, like on your iPhone, you can send mm-hmm. little voice messages through your text, through like, through mm-hmm. just the messages app, whatever. And on like Instagram DMs. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just love it. It's like so quick. It's so nice to hear someone's tone and the way that they're sharing totally. something. And if I'm... You know, if if I have a complex climb with a lot of little micro beta and stuff, it's so much easier for me to like hold my phone up, record video, zoom in on a on a hold and be like, okay, when you grab that hold, there's this little thumb spike, it's fucked up, it hurts, like grab that, you know, twist your hip in there. It took you a while to realize your foot needs to be further right on that foothold so you can match, like whatever, just that would take me like a couple hours to write all that out, all that detail. And I can leave myself a two-minute voice message and capture a lot of that little yeah. minutia. So, yeah. I really like that. That's interesting. Because I totally have, like, beta maps from projects where it'll be like, grab this hole, put the ring finger in in the in the divot, uh, turn your hips immediately. <laughs> yeah. Or something like that. <laughs> and uh, Yeah. But, yeah, I never thought about it. I've also started using the, the voice thing for like iMessages and I agree with you I love it because you're like 
oh, I need to like type this all out, but I want to like put the right tone into my text message and like, because I want to say this, but I also want to like perpetuate that I'm like happy about this or whatever it is, you know, or <laughs> yeah. like that. I, and I'm just, yeah. just like, stop, just hold down the button and, you know, talk like normal. And it's actually been, it's, it's nice because I have a friend, a lot of friends that are like spread out across, across the world. And so, um, it brings more humanness for sure when you can just speak. Mm-hmm. It does. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's amazing. It takes practice too. It feels really awkward at first. Um, mm-hmm. I obviously, I obviously get more practice than most talking mm-hmm. uh, out loud by myself, but, <laughs> but yeah, like once you get used to it, it's awesome. And it's, it's amazing. Like we have so many more tools to connect from afar now that's, yeah, I don't know. That's something that I've been really appreciative of lately, especially. It's just cool. Yeah, most definitely. I feel like as well, like, yeah, I've, I've in the last two years, I've spoke more free, spoken more frequently in front of people than I had in like my whole life, really. Um, like, I guess I was, you know, I was like a TA in grad school and taught like one 300 level, like engineering class, you know, for a semester. So I got like some speaking experience in that regard, but in the last two years I've spoken a lot and it's just one of those things where you just do it and you just get more comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. 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 Carly, I have like two more main bullet points here to hit on before I let you go. Is that okay? Mm, you, you good to yeah, keep going? Totally. Okay. Yeah. Let's see here. The first one is going back to your coaching business and creating a business from scratch. I mean, that's such an opportunity to make whatever it is that you want to make, uh, however you want to make it. Um, what have you tried to do to make sure that your coaching practice and business feels sustainable? Uh, both, I guess we've already talked about like the financial side of it. Um, you can expand on that if you want to, but also emotionally making sure that you're not exhausting yourself, um, balancing that with your own climbing and your own goals and climbing. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. One thing that was important for me to kind of define early on is, um, like certain things that happen on certain days. So when I first started, it was just like, we just did everything all the time, always. And uh, that kind of felt chaotic. <laughs> Still doing that over here, mostly. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, I got to answer this email, but I'm going to get on this call with this person. I'm going to write this training plan and, you know, build a website and try to go climbing training. And like, just like, it was just like, whoa, <laughs> like yeah. not super, uh, and then maybe this is a personality thing too. Like everybody's different in the way that they like to operate. So um, one thing that was helpful for me is to define like athlete call days are Mondays and Wednesdays only. Um, so then on those days, I'm not doing anything else, which means that that allows me to show up very fully and be really present for my calls with my athletes. Um, Cause I'm not thinking about this email that I need to send or this marketing thing or whatever. Um, so Monday is like defining that and then defining Tuesdays as doing all custom training plan work. So that way when I'm in training plan mode, I enter training plan mode and like, I don't have to jump from task to task. It's just very much like that. Um, can say, so, you know, like that's where we lose a lot of efficiency is when we're jumping around a lot mm. from our different tasks. Um, so defining those three days was really helpful in terms of production. Um, and then, also giving me myself a bit of um, autonomy and flexibility of being like, okay, those are your three big work days. 
but you also need to work, you know, a half day to a day somewhere else in the week. So that though, that exists. That's where I do like back house things. Like account, you know, I wear it for, mm. you know, wear all the hats. Like I do all the accounting, all the marketing, all the minute, like everything, all of that stuff still needs to have a place, but I can let that float. So that way it's like, okay. Okay. Like if, um, you know, maybe Thursdays I'm going to get out and I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go out and climb after, after our call. And it's nice Thursday. Great. Go and climb after our call. And, um, but if the weather is bad or, you know, just like allowing my climbing to exist in there too, then it's like, okay, I could just work today and climb tomorrow. And so I think that, that finding that balance of, um, we want to have enough structure that we don't feel like total chaos, but we want to have a some flexibility built in so that way we're not just like feeling like we're still at corporate America job where there's no flexibility mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. F- striking that somewhere in, um, in there. Um, so that's one thing that I've done. That's like really made things feel a little more like they have a flow. Um, that's kind of allows me to have time off and man, like time off with no phone out climbing at least twice a week is like pretty, like, I really, really value that, at, you know, ideally three times a week. Sometimes I get it four, but you know, two to like whatever it is. Yeah. And uh and so that's really key for my own personal happiness is that like time without my phone and time without contact with anybody except for who I'm actually present with has helped me feel a little more sustainable. One thing I'm really gonna try to do at some point in the next year. So since I started Project Direct in 2020, I have not taken a full week off ever. Okay. Which I'm not gonna like, you know, obviously I have like my work schedule is great and allows me to do what I want, but I think there was, is probably going to be a time where I actually like a full, like a full brain download reset. Um, and so that's something I'm trying to work towards. Um, yeah. And then the other way that like bringing, making things more sustainable is like, yeah, bringing on other coaches and from a coaching perspective is really helpful because they all have their own experiences and their own coaching experience. And to have that dialogue of like, Hey, I have this athlete and like, you know, I was thinking about giving them these tasks, but like, do you guys have any thoughts and getting other perspectives? So it's not just, you know, I think that makes all of our programming better if somebody else is being like, Hey, did you think about this? And that could only benefit the athlete, but it also can like take a little bit of like pressure off of me sometimes to like, feel like I have some people to you know, some colleagues really, you know, some coworkers to be like, Hey, what do you think about this? And get that perspective built in. So that's been helpful. And, um, I'm trying to like continue in that direction, you know, for the next years, that way it continues to be sustainable. And yeah, it's like such an interesting, uh, line of work. And, um, you know, I'll say like after a string of a bunch of one-on-one calls i'm i am tired but it's a very different way than i was tired from engineering yeah Uh, yeah and so honoring that giving myself time to rest and seeing the rest is actually really necessary for me to show up as a really good coach is something that i yeah been it took a while to break away from always feeling guilty if it was between the hours of nine to five on a weekday and it wasn't working but i'm yeah yeah god Yeah. Yeah. I'm in my own journey. It's still, it's still a thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I have seasons of more or less structure. Like sometimes I go, I lock into like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday climbing schedule. And that, Mm -hmm. that has always, every time I've done that, that has felt really 
positive, like really freeing mm-hmm. to have just that little bit of structure. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it's so interesting to me, like how difficult it is to actually take a week off. I feel that so strongly as well. And uh, like when you're making your own thing and you actually like what you do, that adds a new mm-hmm. element. It's like, I shouldn't have to take a break because I love doing this, right? Um, but my last <laughs> my last couple of years have been, you know, I put out an episode every week and they they don't they don't make themselves. It takes a ton of work. And then I keep trying to give myself like a little break over the holidays. And I, you know, stop putting out podcasts for a couple of week weeks in December. But then my brain immediately is like, oh, cool. I can finally catch up on all this other shit that's been on the back burner for the whole, totally. you know, for the last few, <laughs> yeah. few months. So. You'll find a way to fill the space. <laughs> I know. Yeah. But I think it's important, man. I think taking a true unplug like you said or you know giving your your brain time to download whatever just stepping away is so important and um yeah it's difficult to do when you when your work directly translates to the success of this thing that you're building you know yeah so yeah 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 so so keep me posted if you get better at that and learn anything i would love to hear (laughs) i would love to uh to learn vicariously through you and apply that to my own climbing situation, my own business. (laughs) Okay. Um, I have one more big bullet point here. We've already talked about it a little bit, but I just want to hear if you have any more thoughts. I I had asked you in our first conversation, um, if there's anything that feels especially important for you to, to say, or to try to get across in this conversation, or that would make you feel proud of this conversation. And, you talked about breaking down the idea that coaching should be cheap. And of course we already, we already talked about that a little bit, but I just want to give you space to elaborate or give your pitch for the climbing industry. If you have an elevator pitch, you know why this is important. Cause I, cause I love it. I think it is so important. And, yeah. But that led to a really interesting conversation that we had about balancing that with accessibility, because that's also a really huge, important conversation in climbing right now is like, how do we bring more people into the sport and welcome people into the sport who, who come from financially challenging backgrounds or or whatever it is, like, how do we give those people the tools to become the best climbers they can be as well? And yeah, you told a fascinating story that just it doesn't answer that question, but it just shows how, how like interesting a, a problem this is and, and how many, how complex it is. So anyway, um, but yeah, first off elevator pitch, if you have one, uh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll actually, can, can I start with talking about like, yeah, swap the order, please. That's yeah. Okay. yeah, of course. Um, yeah, it's such a huge, it's such a huge question. And I think that like, yeah, my initial like statement about like, you know, we want to pay coaches in a way that's commensurate with the scarcity of their skills is certainly a pillar that I value, but then also feeling like, yeah, like I've been there, like I know what it's like to not be able to afford a harness and or shoes or certainly not climbing coaching is like way outside of, was way outside of the purview and kind of how do you rectify holding, wanting to provide that accessibility as value and wanting to pay coaches well as value. And, um, kind of thought about that. And I know like, you know, one thought I was, I thought about like doing a sliding scale and then, um, but one, one th- thing that I tried to do to kind of like address this or to, um, work on this is I remember I was like opened up like, a like, I think it was like eight or 10 spots for, for a training plan. And 
I was kind of in that, like, you know, I still thought it was important to have a transaction because it's like, you know, when you get the, the like that 30 day free yoga membership and you go once mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then you never go cause it's free. And, but if you pay any amount of money, then you go, if it's like, okay, it's not free, but it's like, you can have the month long yoga pass, but it's whatever. There is some amount of like, well, I belong to a yoga studio in Fort Collins and actually paid full price for yoga. I went three times a week. Absolutely. Uh-huh. So I pay full price and I was going to be there, you know, like, right. And so that transaction piece being important. Um, so I was like, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to open up like sort of like scholarship for this. So I'm going to do like eight training plans at like the full price. But then if you feel like you'd benefit from this, but this is financially hard for you, like, please fill out this scholarship application. Um, and then I would give away, I think I was like, yeah, going to give away one for $47, one custom training plan for $47, which is like way, way, way below, but just still like a transaction. So hopefully we get some buy-in from athletes from like the psychology side of this. And, uh, it was amazing. I had like 15 scholarship responses. I read through them. They're like, I was totally floored about how much people were willing to share and these stories that I got to read about. And I think I ended up, I was only going to do one and I was like, I have to do two. Like, there's no way I can't, like these people are getting training plans for $47, like a hundred percent, you know, and spent time putting together that application and reading through, <clears throat> reading through the responses. Um, and it was hard, but selected like two people instead of one, like psyched, you know, let's do this. Um, and they were psyched. And it's interesting though, Neither of those athletes completed their initial assessment for me, or mm. they completed it, or maybe one completed it, but then didn't do the plan. Um, and then in that way, it felt hard because I was psyched to get, you know what I mean? Like I was really like on a human level wanted to get to share this. And then there was no buy-in from the the athlete. And so how do we, and you know, that sort of feels like some sort of psychology, you know, like bit that, you know, we're like, we have to address that too. And so, right. I don't have the answer. I'm not saying I do have the answer, but I'm just saying it's like, it's a complicated problem because I do want, am I better served charging full price, but then donating my own, you know, portions of my own money to people that are taking people out. Is Mm. that a better path? But I'll say it was hard to like, you know, it's hard to like offer something at like 20% of what its normal price is on a scholarship. And then those are the people that don't buy in fully. It's like, well, you know, then they don't get the, that's not good for them because they're not going to get the benefit of it, you know? Right. And, and it's not good for me because I spent a lot of time reading through all of these application responses and I didn't get anybody a transformation at all Hmm. really and um and so it's yeah and I don't think it's anything that anybody did wrong either so there's no blame or like there's nothing wrong with that it's just sort of how do we you know I also need to be like as a business owner how much time am I spending on certain things and would it be better to just keep it at full price donate but how do we get buy-in that feels like an investment for people. So they're actually committed to doing all of the things that I prescribe and getting that transformation. How do we get that buy-in and also make it accessible? I don't know. It's complicated. I don't have the answer. Yeah. It's a complicated question. <clears throat> well, I, I love what you, thank you for that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that story. And I, I love what you said about 
like, do I value myself more and then just like put my own money towards these things that are important? Because I've been thinking about this a lot too. And um, that's, that's what I'm excited to be able to do at, at this point. Like, I'm so grateful to you guys listening who are supporting this podcast and it's allowing me to, to do this. And I, I think I'm like reaching a point where I'm going to have excess and I get to pay that forward. I get to choose how I pay that forward and what I want to help lift up, you know, like other, other people doing really cool shit that are, um, you know, people like Kai Leitner who are um, working more with, with inner city kids that can't afford to go to the climbing gym and buy a harness, whatever it is. Um, you know, seeking out collaborations and partnerships and things is another option. And mm. yeah, I, I just really like what you said. I've been thinking about that a lot lately. I'm, I, I don't have plans yet, but that's just kind of percolating in my mind, yeah. you know? Yeah. So totally. well, I'll be excited to, or if you hear about anything else to like, let me know if you find a way that that seems good. And, you know, maybe the, the answer to you is like, just, you know, volunteering some of my time more or, um, you know, allowing it to exist like that, you know, just like mentoring, continuing to mentor. And actually one thing that that somebody shared with me that I think was a really good piece of advice that I hope to carry through like all my climbing is always striving to be a mentor and a mentee. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. I actually had that written down and thank you. Yeah, go, please continue. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, totally. And like the realization that like it doesn't take long in climbing for you to act as a mentor. You don't have to climb for very long to be a mentor to somebody else. You don't need to be the seasoned veteran to provide at least some help or direction or perspective to somebody else. And I think that's really cool. And I think that taking on that responsibility and seeing yourself in that light is important. Um, you know, if you've been climbing for three, four years and you have a friend that's interested in getting into it is like, that could be as little as like making sure you provide a space where they feel like they, you know, where they feel welcome and they can learn and feel welcome. Okay. I would be like, you know, taking them out for their first outdoor day or something like that. You know, you don't need to commit tons of time, but like, I'm sure I specifically, you know, when I think of mentorship, I, there's somebody that comes to mind immediately for me that, you know, we went out climbing and he, you know, like showed me the ropes for those first like couple years, just to make sure I knew what I was doing. And, um, you know, probably at that time in climbing for four years, but that was invaluable to me. And it like sparked this whole life change, like that, mm. that plant, that, you know, he planted that seed, um, and that, like in that idea. And, um, so how can you, you know, that's what I'm always thinking is like, okay, like obviously coach, I like mentor a lot of people, but like, how can I do that? But also make sure I always have the recognition that I am more to learn. And sometimes I change, like maybe go into a different discipline of climbing more or, um, or as a coach, you know, like there's certainly coaches I can learn from and there's other climbers that I can learn from. And if we can, I think we can provide a lot of good if we're always making sure we're holding both those roles, right? Mm. Like we're staying humble because we're in the learner's seat. We're expanding our own horizons, seeking further education or whatever that looks like. So we're getting into those scenarios where we're not the expert. And we accept that fully. And we're disseminating our experience and information and education to help others along their own path. Um, that just felt like, I remember hearing that and I was like, yeah, like, mm. fuck yeah. Like, that's a good way to go about this. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I kind of like that. 
I really like that as well. And I, cause I, I love to ask coaches what they are interested in learning about or what they're working on in their own climbing, things like that. Cause it's so like, that's so important, you know? Um, so what, what are you excited to learn about? What, where are you being a mentee right now in your life? And you know, mm -hmm. that whether an area of your coaching or your climbing that you're working on, how are you mm -hmm. a mentee right now? Yeah. I think just in the, the realm of like bigger, bigger wall stuff, like, you know, like bigger multi-pitch climbing, you know, like I certainly in that realm, there's just so much room for efficiencies and there's so many options. And there's so many ways to do things and sure. I might know about a lot of them, but do I do them as efficiently or do I have the right, do I always pick the right option? You know what I mean? And just cause it's not, it's that like, it's like, okay, here are all your options. And somebody, you watch somebody that's like totally dialed in that terrain and has done that a ton. They like, it's obvious to them what, what they should do next. Right. And for me, I have to sit there and kind of be like, we could do this. And then I have to like think through like the road management of it for a second. It's not immediately obvious. And so, um, I think just spending more time being, a, trying to be a sponge in that scenario and asking questions and learning the why of each decision is, um, a way that I'm certainly feel like a mentee, you awesome. know, like hundred percent. Yeah. Um, and that's good. And I think it's good to always be in a, have part of your life where you're learning and you're not, you're not the one that knows it all. Cause that's the reality of, of most of life. But sometimes we get really good at one thing and where we really hone in one thing. And it's easy to like, think that we have, less to learn than we actually do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. That'd be the way I'm being a mentee right now. And uh, yeah, I imagine that will continue for the next year or two. Great. I love it. I'm excited to see, yeah. uh, or I'm excited to hear about you going back and crushing rainbow wall when you put, <laughs> put all those skills together and, and many more, yeah, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. Carly, this has been awesome. I, I've really loved this conversation. It's um, It's been so interesting. I, I'm going to be going back and really focusing on certain parts of it myself because um, I, I just really appreciate where you came from, what you're doing, and the way in which you're you're finding balance, like both for these different parts of you, like the engineering you and the artist you and how you're filling both of those, but then also how you're balancing giving a lot to other people with giving a lot to yourself and becoming a better climber yourself um and balance like two engineers <laughs> i know i know and i think we're both like very atypical engineers like can you imagine <laughs> i can't think of many pairs of engineers that could have a two and a half hour conversation <laughs> like this and talk about yeah yeah oh, I, life yeah. lessons that they've learned and things like that so that's pretty awesome <laughs> Um, but yeah, I want to give you the floor if you have any final thoughts, um, whether that's the elevator pitch, if you have more to say on valuing coaching more, or coaching shouldn't be cheap. If you want to leave people with that to wrap up or anything yeah. else that feels important to share. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. I think, I think we said most, I think I said most of my thoughts on it. I think that, yeah, like just, um, you know, people will, work hard and find fulfillment when they feel valued and they do what they love. And, um, our job as industry professionals and, or leaders is to see that as something that's a part of our job is like making people feel valued and also seeing that as some, like an amazing way to expand 
and grow because when people feel valued, they're going to be innovative and, um, you know, show up with all of the, all of the good things that they have to bring, whatever, whatever flavor that takes. Um, yeah, so that's kind of just, I hope again, if there's any, any impact that I have, that's kind of, kind of what it is on the industry. And then, yeah. Um, yeah. So like you said, Carly, my founder and head coach of Project Direct, if you enjoyed this conversation and want to chat more about any of these things, I'd love to, love to hear from you. Um, and yeah, sure you'll link, link things. I'll link to all the things. Yeah. You guys should absolutely work with Carly. If you, um, if you love this conversation, are you taking clients right now? Like what is your, what does it look like for people to reach out to you? Yeah. So by the time this airs, let's see, do we just close enrollment for like, kind of like our head game program for the next few months? So that's full right now. Um, but we have our training plan roster, um, by the time this airs may have a couple spots, but that kind of operates on like a rolling, a rolling enrollment. And so there probably will be a couple of spots by the time this airs. So yeah, if you're interested in chatting more about what that looks like, yeah, shoot me a, shoot me an email or a DM. I'm very, it's, very easy to get a hold of me, honestly. <laughs> like <laughs> I'm excited to chat. And, you know, like with the recognition that like chatting with, you know, chatting about what that looks like is just a way for us to get to know each other. And I take that, you know, that coach athlete relationship is important to me. And so that could look like, oh wow, we're gonna get going with this right now. Or like sounds like a great thing for you in six months. Mm. And uh it's really important for me to get athletes into programs that are really gonna be the right fit for them that they're excited about. And so um yeah, I'm excited to meet anybody that takes a listen and is and wants to chat a little bit. I love it. Well, I will link to all the things per usual at thenuggetclimbing.com in the show notes for this episode. I'll link to your website because coaching is an investment and people that want to do that should research you and do their homework and learn about you. Uh, I'll link to your Instagram as well. And um, I'm sure people can find your contact on your website. Um, yep. Yeah, yeah, thank you guys for listening. Again, thenuggetclimbing.com for all the things. And thank you, Carly. I've really loved this conversation. It's been really fun to chat with you again. Cool, awesome. Well, thanks for having me. Hey friends, before you go, don't forget to check out the Grasshopper board. You can check out Grasshopper Climbing on Instagram at grasshopperclimbing or visit grasshopperclimbing.com to find out where you can find a board near you and try it out for yourself. Be sure to tell them I sent you and when you are ready to get your very own Grasshopper board, you can save some big money on your purchase. And be sure to check out Rhino Skin Solutions. Whether you have dry, glassy skin or sweaty skin and have trouble keeping chalk on your hands like I do, Rhino Skin Solutions has products that are designed just for you and your skin type. Check them out at rhinoskinsolutions.com and use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order. And if you love this episode, be sure to follow Carly on Instagram and check her out at Project Direct Coaching. I will put links to her Instagram and website and all the things in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. Please don't hesitate to reach out to her if you're interested in her coaching or have questions. And that is it, my friends. Thank you so much for listening to the very end. I appreciate you guys as much as ever. I hope you have an amazing week. Best of luck with your training and climbing or 
leisure time this summer if you're kicking it and getting some good quality rest. Don't feel guilty. Rest is important. Enjoy it. And we will see you next time. Like we do.